Ladies and gentlemen, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. This is the Hackman Report for today. It is Wednesday, May 23rd, 2018. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your belief and trust in us as we walk through the minefield of current events and headlines together. My goodness. Uh, you know, the lack of civility is clear. The left playing by no, no rules. It's uh, getting worse out there. You can't even go to a restaurant and uh, without having water thrown at you. If you are a conservative, if you're a Christian conservative, the behavior of the uh, left, the progressive democratic socialists, I don't want to call them progressives, the democratic socialists, evident, of course, uh, you know, the, the big news, of course, on social media, and, and what's being talked about is, is Tommy Lahren, of course, the conservative commentator from Fox News, being uh, uh, leaving a restaurant this past weekend, or at a restaurant and having water thrown on her and having the restaurant cheering. And the, the only reason I'm bringing this up is, is not because of any other reason except to show that there are no more rules anymore. The, the, the rules are out, out the window. Civility is gone. And what's the next step? What's the step beyond this? The, it's not, it's never, you know, it's not about the water. It's never about the water. It's never about the spoon. Long-time listeners will know what I mean by that. It's never about the... It, it's This is much deeper. The, the hatred, the visceral hatred that exists among the population, the, uh, the ideological divide, which is the legacy of Obama, Obama's legacy of division, it's clear. It's clear what he left this country. And we're seeing it play out on, on the streets. We're seeing it play out in restaurants, and we're seeing it play out on the, across the internet. And of course, the intolerance, the intolerance of the tolerant left. This is what we're seeing. We've got a great show lined up for you tonight. First up, Steve Quayle, stevequayle.com. And then a very special treat for everyone. Uh, John Barber will be joining us. If you've never, well, if you're old enough to remember real people, that that series that America's first reality show, Real People, that John Barber, the Emmy Award winner for news and for entertainment, that John Barber, but known more importantly for his work with Jim Garrison, yeah, that John Barber, and for the millennials who might say, well, who's Jim Garrison? Jim Garrison is the gentleman, is the uh, was the uh, district attorney of New Orleans, who successfully prosecuted. Well, he solved the, the JFK assassination. I'll just leave it at that. He's coming up second hour. First, Steve Quayle. And uh, it's good to have Steve with us. My goodness, he's had a rough uh, rough week, week and a half, he, he and his wife. And I'll let him explain to the extent that he would like to uh, what's going on. But uh, do we have him? Yeah, All right. Yep, do. I'm, All right. I'm on. So, uh, good to, good to, glad, you're, glad you're here. Yeah, glad, glad to be here. We got a, a great show lined up, as you said, and let's not waste any more time. We have Steve Quayle from stevequayle.com here with us. Steve, it's great to have you back on the show. 
Well, thank you, Joe. A week ago, I was in the hospital with my wife. She was undergoing a, a uh, kind of emergency surgical procedure for a medial glute tear. Uh, that's the basically tendon that holds your hip, uh, you know, I guess the hip into the hip socket, the hip bone in the hip socket. And what was supposed to turn out to be kind of a basic three to three hour surgery turned into five hours. And due to the fact that someone, I guess the standard procedure during that type of an operation over that many hours to put either pads over the uh, uh, person's eyes or goggles, as some of the nurses have told me. Well, what happened is is that when her surgical procedure was done, the one of the nurses had evidently taped her eyeballs. And when the tape was taken off, understand, it tore her corneas, uh, one cornea, two, like if you can imagine a potato peel, in one area and the other one, uh, uh, kind of a deeper divot, I'd say like a golf divot. And uh, the thing is, is that when uh, Loretta is my wife, when she came out of the anesthesia, I noticed something was wrong because normally, you know, you go in and they put you in stage one recovery, stage two. And they kept coming out and giving me, you know, I guess you'd say trying to protect me. But at some point, I just said enough is enough. And I said, look, you either get me in there to see my wife or, um, you know, I'm coming in and I will physically take her out of here. Now, here's why I said that. Because I could tell that they were, by the movement of their eyes, they weren't telling me something. Well, what had happened, Doug, Joe, and by the way, before I even go on, I want to thank everybody who has called to prayer. I want to especially thank Pastor David Langford on the Hagman and Hagman Report for calling everybody to prayer. I want to thank the intercessors, all of you who are called to prayer on my behalf and her behalf. Because obviously something was going wrong. I knew that I was in deep trouble, and she was in deep trouble. And I say I was in deep trouble because I knew that unless the Lord intervened at that spot, they were going to call security in on me. Then finally, a very cool anesthesiologist came in and he said, Look, here's what's going on, and finally told me the truth. What had happened, and I did not know this yet, it was on massive doses of morphine for her hip surgery, and obviously when the general anesthesia wore off, uh, they assumed that all her pain was associated, but she kept telling them, and she was, at one point she was screaming in pain, my eyes, my eyes. Well, I didn't know this, and I found this out from the cardiologist, but when you get your corneas torn, uh, the morphine, all the opiate drugs or whatever they try and, uh, you know, keep your pain in order, they don't work. And so it put her heart into afibrillation. And then from there it went downhill. It went into an electrical storm. So they immediately took her across the uh, way into the hospital, first the emergency room, and then into uh, a place where they put cardiac patients. Now, I want to make something clear. My wife's 130 pounds. She's an extreme backpacker. She's in the gym probably, uh, you know, three times a week. She does Pilates. She's a bicyclist. Along, I mean, she's in great physical shape. Her resting pulse is probably. Yeah, I'd say no more than 80 over 60, 70. And uh, the thing is, I only share that, that I, I think God taught us a lesson. But for the record, Doug, 
I listen to my wife, you know, uh, uh, just be in massive pain with tears running down at midnight the night of the surgery. That would have been Wednesday night. I just heard her in her room, and I was there by her side, but I was outside trying to get a nurse or somebody calling up the ophthalmologist or some eye person to come in and take a look at her eyes. Now, at any point after her surgery uh, for her hip, did anybody take what she was saying seriously? Nobody. And when you watch someone you love, you know, basically in pain that long, and for the record, her pain did not subside for 18 hours. And I can tell you this, that it was it was a very troubling time. So why I'm saying this, I want to thank all of you who are praying. And what I'm going to, about to tell you next is going to be a lesson I learned, and I want to share this with everybody. I left the hospital, I think, about midnight. I had been in there for seven hours, eight hours straight, and I just, they don't, they wouldn't bring me in a cot. I would have stayed there. They wouldn't even let me sleep in a chair. I would have stayed there. That happens to be their policy. And I'm not... I'm not blaming anybody, but I think I want to share something. What I pulled out of this at two o'clock in the in the morning, two a.m. Mountain Time, I was asleep at a, a hotel. Uh, I was w- awakened by three of the most hideous-looking creatures I've ever seen that were supernatural evil. I looked at them. They looked at me. I rebuked them in Jesus' name. And by the way, anybody who thinks this is a story that's being made up, take it to the Lord and see if he doesn't validate this. And after I rebuked them and they disappeared, I said, Lord, what is this? What is this? Now, I assumed that they were associated, obviously, with what was maybe going on with me and my wife and everything. And then I'm going to share some stuff I think will be mind-blowing because we're in a spiritual battle. What happened to Tommy Laren and others, we are no longer, ladies and gentlemen, in the world of niceties. We are in a battle for our lives, and it is a spiritual battle. Doug, when I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, what are these things? He said, these are three new categories of evil that have been loosed in the earth. And, you know, he didn't say it's this, this, and that. He just said these are three new. And I, I instantly understood that these were things that were held out of our realm for a purpose. And then he said, there is nothing normal anymore, Steve. There is nothing business as usual. Everything will change, and everything will change quickly. And then I said, but, Lord, why now? Why am, Why is this going on now? My wife's in the hospital, and I'm praying for her and everything else. And here's what he said. He said, there are those who claim to be followers of mine that are cursing you, Steve. Now, look, Doug, you and I have issues, you know, but beyond what we know, and I I hope people understand this, there are people, this is what the Lord said, who claim to be mine that are cursing you. And, wow, I said, well, you know, I kind of kicked that one aside saying, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And, Doug, I know I sound cynical, and I am, and I know I sound kind of a little bit, you know, torqued, and I am. But what happened there in that whole situation is this. We went into a surgical situation that supposedly the doctors had assured that, uh, you know, was a piece of cake. The point is, is that when you've got the cardiologist, the cardiovascular surgeon preparing me saying, look, she's going to have a stroke. This is my wife who's 130 pounds, okay, physically fit or worse. She can basically, you know, um, have a heart attack, a stroke, and, and they're trying to prep me, okay? And even the cardiologist said this. This is all relevant. I'm not going in circles, okay? Well, I have to go in circles to bring right back to the point. Even the cardiologist says, just in passing, oh, yeah, by the way, 
he said, you know, I'm a surgeon, but eye pain is probably one of the most, on a pain scale, one of the worst that you can endure. And notice the amount of hours. It was 18 hours, okay? Now, look, I don't look for spiritual woo-woo in the background, but when it's your wife and you're seeing no release of her pain, and, you know, the thing that's keeping her going is the prayers of people, you get real appreciative of intercessory prayer. I don't have full understanding of what the three evil spirits were. They looked absolutely, how should I say this? They, one of them looked like a rock-like demon creature with a pointed ears like you see, but they had a hierarchy to them, and they had a different class. I, in other words, I have literally seen the devil when he appeared before me once when I was on talk radio, and he rolled his, uh, and some of you will probably remember that show, I was, I was, Oh, no, I don't know, maybe, and I, I don't mean to be, you know, misleading anybody on the years, five to seven years ago, and Satan all of a sudden appears before me, roars his head back, and in a guttural voice says, you cannot stop me. Well, I'm not even talking about Satan on the air or anything like that. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want to share something. The Hagmans are in a fight beyond what you know. The dimensions that used to be kept from us are now coming to us. Jesus said he gives us power to turn on serpents and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt us. But I'm watching, Doug, a new breakdown, and praise God, I, I and to my wife, I got her released, and I insisted they release her. Do you know in the entire uh, city of Billings, there is a one eye doctor, and I'm talking that it had to be an op the logical surgeon that would come to the hospital because of the politics and you know there's a couple hospitals there i'm not blaming anything i'm just saying this i got her in the car i rushed her back to bozeman unfortunately we have a great great uh, eye doctor in bozeman uh you know and he said oh this is what's happened he took pictures of her cornea so all this is documented i've got her ekg so all of it is documented in case we have any of the uh, trolls out there, but the point being is that by it took to get out of Billings and to Bozeman and get these band-aids on her eyes and get some stuff. They wouldn't even put, there's a, a numbing solution for eyes, I don't know what it's called, those of you are optometrists, but they're only allowed to put so much in at the hospital for so many times, so we packed her eyes with ice, and thank God when we got her to Bozeman, it was better. So what I learned from that, I think what the Lord would have me share with uh, your audience, because it was Pastor Langford and each and every one of you that was interceding for me and for my wife, you can have no expectations outside of Jesus anymore. You can think you're going to do this. You think you can go mow your lawn or do whatever. And I'm not saying mowing the lawn is the same as a life-threatening, uh, a standard surgical procedure that turned into a life-threatening procedure. But I can tell you, Doug, it was supernaturally evil. And ladies and gentlemen, those of you who pray for the Hagmans, pray for, for me, the ministry that God's given us, Pastor Langford, the different guests, this is real stuff. And you know, Doug, I, 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 I can almost read some of the minds, and I'm not saying I'm a mind reader, but, you know, wait until this stuff shows up in their bedroom and judging by or their hotel room and judging by the emails I get, the people of God are being terrorized on a supernatural level. The Bible says in the book of James, resist the devil and he must flee from you. But you have to resist. You have to know how to resist with the word. You have to know how to resist with your authority. You have to know who you are in Jesus. 
So when when you are confronted with the situation, when all of your, I would say this, non-spiritual uh, exits, there's no way out, then that's when God steps in. I remember my wife, it changed at about early, early in the morning. I was back at the hospital, and she just looked at me, and she just said, Jesus, not to me, but she was looking, you know, in my direction. Understand, her eyes are as bloodshot. It looks like worse than you can describe. Her eyelids are swollen. She looked like she'd beaten in the face with a baseball bat. That's not an exaggeration. If any of you have ever seen anybody that's really been kicked in their head a lot, that's how bad her eyes were. So, uh, again, that's what's going on. Business as usual is over. Every expectation you have based on the past no longer exists. Good example. I heard your intro, Doug, and what happened to, uh, uh, is it Tammy Laren? It's Tommy Laren. Tommy, Tommy Laren. Okay. Yeah, the, the, you know, the, I, I call her the blonde lady, and I don't mean that as any disrespect, but it's the same way. It's when you've got people as Al Gore, Igor, calling for basically the assassination of the president, sitting president. Everything that the abomination that has made this nation desolate has put in place, portals have been released. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it is not a political position. It's life versus death. It's truth versus a lie. And at the end of every argument, Doug, at the end of, uh, you know, all of our pondering, how do we get in this place? It basically boils down to this. The salt lost its savor. The light of the world hasn't gone out. But there's a lot of Christians that had better get some juice in their bulbs B-U-L-B-S, and start realizing that we we either are the preservative and we are the, um, uh, I guess you'd say, the, the oh, dam against the flood of filth, or we just go into eternity, and we go into eternity defeated, and thank God that he hasn't predicated defeat or declared defeat for us, but the victory has to be taken, which brings me to tonight, I just want to share some things. In the last week, some of the greatest revelations that have been known for years are coming out. I believe we're so close to, quote, the aliens uh, uh, created us, uh, to the chance, of, uh, not the chance, but the change in psyche that will attack all the foundations of Christianity coming to pass. I believe that every form of deception... Now, look, people can say, but you've been saying that for 30 years, and for 30 years I was ahead of you, critics, and you didn't pay attention. Now you'll have to pay your dues. That's not a threat. Here's the thing. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, Yeshua, for those of you who uh, refer to Jesus as Yeshua, the thing is is that that he fought him to destroy the works of the evil one. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested, that he might destroy the works of the evil one. I don't believe, Doug, that people understand that this is now. I think you and I did a show, or Pastor and I and you did a show, what, maybe a month ago, whenever. But this is the time to stand. This is the time to fight. This is the time to say, you know, this is the time to run towards the enemy, not run from him. And when you get as furious through whatever event you've done, I remember when Renee was going through, your wife was going through her surgery. I remember, you know, when you were fighting fighting things that, you know, people didn't know about. You know, when I'm fighting things that I won't, uh, you know, we don't want anything to take away from the supremacy of the Lord. But people, please hear me out tonight. You know, I 
am trying, by the grace of God, to fulfill my calling. And Doug is fulfilling his calling. Joe, John Robertson wrote a great article. I put it up. I don't know if you saw it, but I said, you have to watch this. You have to, you have to read this. I'm sorry. And the idea is simply this. Doug, in my opinion, nobody understands the nature of the battle that's against them that claims to be, quote-unquote, evangelical believers and people that are believing that there still is a constitutional due process are greatly deceived because the globalists are Luciferians, they have the love of the Father is not in them, and so we have to fight with the wisdom and the direction and the blueprint for God and from God for this battle, because the battle is the Lord's, but it also demands our participation. Go ahead. You know, Steve, you said a whole lot, and it's interesting how you started out with with the uh, describing what your wife went through. And by the way, folks, again, thank you on our behalf for praying. You know, I, I didn't know how, how much, uh, to reveal last week about, about Steve's wife and her condition, but folks, let me tell you something. Prayer does make a difference. I just want to start there because, um, it would, without prayer, it, I, I think things might have turned out a little bit differently. Um, uh, so thank you for praying. That's number one. Number two, what you said, Steve, about, uh, the attacks in, and I, I bring this up only in the context of, um, the, Attacks against all of us, and, and I include our listeners and the people who watch us in this as well. They're in, they're on the rise, and and people really have no idea what each one of us goes through. Look, I, I've got no idea what uh, uh, Karen L is going through. Okay, for example, a listener, and she's got no idea what, what we're going through. The reason I, I mention this is because we all are under greater attack today, those who are attempting to expose the truth through the prism of the, the gospel, through the prism of, of the Christian um, or Christian faith, or Christian walk. Bottom line here, the war, something changed, Steve. I, I really think something changed in the last, I don't know, what would you say, within the last couple of weeks, months, uh, days even? Yeah, I, I, would, I would say, yeah, obviously, I think, I think things have changed within the last couple of months, and not for the better. And so right. here's the thing, you know, people say, well, why don't you talk more about Jesus? I've spent 25 years on talk radio, and I don't believe that anyone has talked more about Jesus than I am, who's not a preacher, okay, or Pastor Langford. Uh, David started listening to me, I think, on my first or second, Pastor David Langford. David, my friend, but we all know him as Pastor David Langford, started listening to me, I think, on either the first or second show I ever did on talk radio. And we became friends. And then Doug and I came across each other when, again, I don't think many people realize, Doug, you and I uh, became friends. We did a uh, HQ Intel alert. That's in the days of newsletter. And then, obviously, with the coming of the Internet, that stuff was too, too passe. I mean, it was, it was the minute you wrote it, you know, there's another month's worth of stuff the very next day you need to write out for the next month. So you couldn't keep up with it. And now... People are so, how should I say this, trained to need instantaneous data that, uh, you know, we all click on. I know I go on different websites, and I want my information as up to the day. For instance, on Kilauea, I, you know, on the big island of Hawaii, I have friends there. They're, they're, I'll tell you what, the Hawaiians are some of the most beautiful people in the world. 
and and their spirits. And look, I understand all the paganism on the islands. I understand the thing that held that in check was Christianity. I understand probably the cannibalism and the entire dispersion of the giants throughout the South Pacific, as well as anybody on the planet at this time, because that's where God has led me. But when it's all said and done, we are now in the place where the old ways won't work. And I'm talking about biblical ways. I'm talking about, well, someone will come and rescue us. You know, we used to have a song, Rescue the Perishing, and that's our job on a daily basis. But you know, Doug, the mind control, and this is what I'm going to ask everybody to start praying about, praying that God will absolutely bring down the mind control apparatus because you see it on your television, you see it, in, or actually you don't see it, but you sense it and experience it through Wi-Fi, you experience it through just about everything, whether it's radio, whether any electronic waveforms can alter your brain very uh, substantially, especially in the realms of what I would call black physics. Black physics simply means the area of science and understanding that has been possessed through literally, if you will, tens of given by the fallen angels. So, you know, we're we're at a point now, and I apologize for somebody trying to call in, and I don't, I can't cut them out. But the point <laughs> no that I'm trying to make is this: is that we're in a different time zone now, and we're at the point of contact. Contact is this: when that which was in the spiritual world that you could acknowledge but not have to deal with, okay, that point is no longer uh, prescient. The one now is contact. I guess you call it like the difference between tag football and full contact football, and we're in the full contact football. That's a good analogy. Yeah, excellent analogy. And, and most people don't understand the lateness of the hour. But what you said before, you know, about warning people, and, of course, we're all mocked for the warnings that we give. Now it's upon us. And it's interesting that people aren't seeing what we're seeing, and, and that is the manifestation and the physical of the fight that, that you've been warning about for decades. It's incredible to me. Well, look, here's, I'm going to give somebody probably one of the greatest revelations, I think, that is so important, you know, I, and I, I want to share this. I want everybody, if they can, to, to, and this isn't to sell my book, but I want everyone to, to go to my True Legends, the True Legends book and acquire it, or the, get the True Legends DVDs. But in the book, I quote the, you know, the Native American legends before any Christian influence about the race of giants. But now let me share with you how a contemporary headline has changed everything in understanding why the Smithsonian has covered up. And for the first time in history, the next DVD we're releasing has eyewitness testimony from someone who was brought to the Smithsonian with impeachable, unimpeachable, not unimpeachable credentials. I went back, and thank you, Eric, if you're listening. This is an Eric that uh, started looking through the newspaper, the old newspaper articles, and three different articles, which we will be placing, you know, within the DVD. That DVD will be out, by the way. This is not a True Legends 4. This is called Forbidden History Revealed. It's a 90-minute DVD. And, you know, for over the years, I've, I've gotten so much flack. But here's the story. It was on Homeland Security Newswire. And I hope you guys saw this, Joe and Doug. 
using proteins from bones to identify people. I'm going to read just the quick abstract from it, and then I think most of you uh, will probably figure out, those who have listened to me on Hagman and Hagman. Now, this is critical. This is as time-sensitive and as important as anything I've ever said. When a team of researchers led by Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory developed a new biological identification method that exploits information encoded in proteins, they thought it could have multiple applications. Nearly two years later, they've turned out to be right. One possible important application for using protein markers from human bones could be to help determine the identity of partial remains from catastrophic events such as plane crashes, fires, or 9-11 and terrorist attacks. Okay, everybody says, well, that's cool. Take it back to what I've been talking about. Where are all the bones of the giants if they're real? Well, the fact there's probably 2,000 newspaper articles, and I'll be putting up 30 in the DVD and an addendum. The DVD will be proving this. But if you knew, Doug, and you were the spawn of hell, that this technology existed or would be announced, and that if anybody got a hold of the bones who understood the process, what we're talking here is about genetic memory. We're talking about proteins. We're talking about even, and, and I'll take everybody a step beyond that. DNA has almost infinite storage capacity. I think we talked on your show the previous time, uh, maybe 10, uh, uh, let's see, maybe three, four weeks ago, maximum a month ago, where scientists were talking about brain matter, even of a deceased individual being able to see what they saw, even though they're dead. Do you remember that story? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's now, now put it together, ladies yep. and gentlemen. If you can describe by proteins to identify people, groups, and tribes, why would you then suspect that the powers that be that are going to spring on the people of this planet, the greatest deception, would want you to know the Genesis 6 narrative, that the sons of God came unto the daughters of men and produced an offspring of giants? And how is it that non-Christian influenced tribes around the world, some so obscure as to defy even uh, uh, language translation after, you know, years and years, but they all come back to the great spirit or the gods being angry at the cannibals that were destroying his creation. By the way, most people don't understand it. That is a central theme throughout. My first chapter in, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm sorry, True Legends, I talk about that. So here's the point, Doug. Imagine you've got XYZ's bones, and let's say you find the bones of somebody. Well, let's just take Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh, the oldest epic in the world. Gilgamesh was half man, half angel. What I'm trying to get at is when you identify the fallen angel DNA, and again, I had to answer an answer, uh, answer the question that I keep trying to explain to people. There are writers out there that I disagree with. They're my brothers in the Lord, but they use the word Nephilim for everything. The word Nephilim is only used twice in the Old Testament. In uh, Genesis chapter 6, there were giants in those days before the flood and after the flood, when the sons of God, and those are not normal people, okay, those are the angels, came unto the daughters of men, okay? People can say, I don't believe that stuff. The only time that's ever used in the Old Testament, the word Nephilim, is once before the flood and once after. After that, everything else is basically, everything else is Rephaim. So now what I'm trying to tell you is this. 
by using proteins from bones to identify people or the giant's DNA, okay, or the uh, fallen angelic heraldry, if you will, it's possible, and I believe it's already been done, to basically take the DNA and at some level, and in the world of physics, I do not even understand, okay, I can conceptualize it, but I can't say how they do it, to get the genetic memories of, let's say, fallen angel A's offspring, giant B, and even to the point of being able to, uh, if you find the bones of giant B, a demon is a disembodied spirit of a giant. Nephilim do not cover giants, fallen angels, and demons. They are all three separate things. The words are never used. So follow with me. If you were going to launch a deception on the people of God, you can use the very thing I'm putting forward right now on your show. People can shake your head, say I'm crazy, but I want to share something. There is no way that this revelation can come through understanding. Doug, I want you to know that there is no way. I talked to, um, I talked to a friend of mine, a well-known Christian author, and he said, you just can't get that stuff. And I said, you got it. It's got to be given to you. So I hope, and Doug, because you're more linear than I am, God bless you for that talent that God gave you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Am I being clear enough, or do I need to restate it, or can you restate it for me? Well, okay, let me just say this for the people listening. Uh, Steve Quayle... I, I went, to, okay, let me back up real quick here. This is important to, to the topic. I, uh, am certified in the forensics of blood spatter analysis. The individual who trained me in this forensic discipline standardized the language of this forensic discipline. For example, blood spatter versus splatter. You think it's the same? There's a difference. And you want to pollute a, a criminal case use the wrong language. You want to use deceptive tactics in a criminal case, use the improper terms. The reason I said that, this is very much like the forensic discipline of giants, if you will. And Steve Quayle has standardized the language of giants, of Rephaim, Nephilim, and and demons, we'll say. Okay, uh, certifying, authenticating the difference using specific language. The reason I mention this is because the language will be used deceptively in addition to the other deceptions. So what Steve Cole has done through his book True Legends, as well as Giants, Genesis 6 Giants, is to standardize the language to make it so it could be court courtroom-ready introduction-level language in order to teach people like you and me, the listeners and viewers, um, the exact science of what he's talking about. And it's a very important. Does that make sense to you, Steve? Yeah, it does. And you did it in a way I can't do it. And I'm, I'm sorry I can't articulate it because here's the deal. If you look at uh, the different trailers out there that are, are uh, movies, people sent them to me and they said, uh, I didn't see the Avengers, but there's a big guy in there, uh, uh, Thanos, T-H-A-N-O-S. And by the way, Thanatos in Greek, I think, or Thanatos is death. But, you know, giants here, giants there, giants everywhere. And what's astonishing to me is the, if you will, the amount of superheroes, whether it's Superman, Superwoman, Batman, 
and Batwoman, and I could say somebody else, but I won't. You know, the thing is related to Bat. Uh, the thing is, is that uh, you know, what would it be? Super dung. The thing is, is that this is uh, promising our children and training our children that there's something better. There's H plus, human plus. There's this transhumanist, whether you're, um, oh, what was the name of the guy that, uh, I'm sorry, I'm really bad on this uh, tonight, but the thing is is that uh, in some of the uh, transhumanist type of creatures and the different things, whether they can freeze you with their breath or lasso you with fire or you know, the Wolfman guy, what was his name? Hugh Jackman played him, you know, where he had claws that came out. Um, mm. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm just, I, I'm going for a name I can't lay my hands on right now. But Wolverine. even the guys, I'm, I'm sorry? Wolverine? Wolverine, that, thank you. Yeah. Right. I've been contacted by some of the smartest gamers. A couple of them are Christians. God bless you, brethren, in that world. And they said everything. Now, these are their words, and these are well-known guys. These are very, very famous. They said everything is going evil. Everything is going dark. Everything is going occult. And everything is going to mock. And one guy said to me, he said, they're going to mock Jesus beyond anything you could ever imagine. Now, because I know if I even use the one word that relates to uh, urinating on the wall, that that will make people mad. That will make people more mad than babies being torn apart or occult ceremonies, you know, raping children and doing horrible things to them after they've killed them. And yet people are so, how should I say this, steadfastly self-righteous that I, I dare to say a tear has never fallen from their tear duct for those slain. I'm talking about self-righteous people. I'm not talking about people who generally... God rebuked his people when he said, you guys are so hardened in sin, you don't even blush anymore. You know what that oh, means? Amen. You've accepted everything. You yep. guys are so hardened in sin, I'm going to put it in modern-day terms, that you don't even care anymore. Because all it is is me, myself, and I. Now, I'm taking a little digression there. So... Out of this tonight, then I'm only on for another 20 minutes or whatever, not even that maybe, but the point that I want to get people to understand, take what I'm saying to the Lord in prayer and say, God, did what I hear is what I'm hearing tonight from you. Are we in a battle now that the invisible becomes visible? Are we in a time period where no longer is it a, if you will, a theological argument, but it's a literal daily battle with entities beyond description? Lord, are we in that time period? And, and I make my, and sorry, Doug, but I'm on record. I don't mean sorry to you, but ladies and gentlemen, I, I make, uh, I'm, I'm sorry this may upset your theology. Again, take it to the Lord in prayer. But when I first got saved in 1972, when I, you know, when I was showing everything going on in the future, but it was sealed up from me until the time of the end, and God would only release it, I'm telling you, the fact that He's released what I just shared to you tonight, not the fact, I'm not, look, I don't work at Lawrence Livermore and don't know how to identify proteins and people, but what I just shared with you has never been spoken about before. What it's going to do, Doug, it's going to show the the conceit and the arrogance and the assumption of pride that got Lucifer, uh, the, you know, one of the uh, cherubs, the anointed cherub, 
kicked out of heaven. That's going to come into the foreground. It's going to come in through the arrogance of the fallen angels being identified through the DNA of the giants and the genetic memories and visions and and hearing and thought. What I'm saying is, and, and I hope this is really linear, that you're going to see a history played out that's going to wow and it's going to blow your mind. And when you embrace what I'm saying, you pray about it. And so how do we deal with it? Let's get to the good news. The good news is God said his people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, not because he doesn't present it to them, but because they reject it. Therefore, if you accept it, pray about it, and ask God for his wisdom, you don't have to be afraid of it. The most, uh, uh, let's just say this, the most, the youngest Christian has the same power in the name of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, and through the power of the Holy Spirit that the oldest guys have. The oldest guys just had more years to practice it. And then, but the most powerful thing that that I believe that God wants to come out of this hour on your radio show tonight is that He has given you more than you can ever imagine. And if you don't believe that, go to Romans eight and read the last last you know half a dozen verses in the Romans eight because there's nothing that's coming, nothing that's here, nothing that's present or will be present that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's a big deal, Doug. This is a huge deal. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I want to share this with you. i got to get this in, too. Uh, Branson right now, which is coming up September, Transhumanism and Hybrid. Do you know why that title was chosen? Because this will become after Branson. Mark my words. This has to do with revelation, not anything else. The two biggest issues that will flood uh, the world from September on, and somebody said, well, that's arrogant. No, it's just revelation. If you think it's arrogant, then talk to Jesus. Seriously, talk to him. And the point being is that at after Branson, God's people are going to be all over the world. They're going to be specific people who have a hunger for truth. And God knows, you know, God, hey, listen, he's God. He can look at it, all of our hearts, and all of our hearts are before him. But he knows who he can entrust with the information. And after Branson, I'm telling you, everything is going to change in ways that will be astonishing. The difference between the conference, and it's in uh, Branson, Missouri, what is it, the 14th through the 17th, uh, actually 14th through the 16th, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, It's going to be so important, 14th is registration, that right now, as far as uh, tickets left, I think we're down to less than 500. And we want people to be there. I'm going to be sharing with the Hagman and Hagman viewers exclusively the life-size giant. Now, how does this have to do with transhumanism hybrid age? The guy you're going to see at Branson, or you're going to at least see a, a photograph of, for those of you who can't go there, and I'd encourage you to sign up for live streaming. We have a given amount of bandwidth, and we can only handle so many people in live streaming. And last year in Branson, people waited to the last minute. Now, if, if I'm counting the calendar right, what is it today? May 23rd, okay? We've got June, July, August, 90 days, and, you know, 90, let's say 100 days approximately. And in that 100 days, Actually, 113 days, 15 hours, 17 minutes, and 48 seconds before the, uh, we have a counter on our – I'm not doing that in my head. But transhumanism and the hybrid age, you're going to see a giant right out of history. Now, the man who you'll see with his uh, face blurred and his voice uh, – uh, 
how do I say, obscured for his safety's sake, uh, has been in the uh, Smithsonian, has seen the 19-foot uh, skeletons, has seen the Egyptian artifacts, and basically, it was a matter of fact presented to him. That was 20 years ago when, uh, you know, someone that he knew passed away, and, uh, you know, it, I'm just going to leave it like that, not to tease, but also you'll see the actual newspaper clippings where the Smithsonian and Stanford were fighting over the remains of giants. So if you talk to giant about giants today, Stanford basically, or uh, the Smithsonian, after about yeah, pretty much uh, early 1900s where the science magazines and everybody, something changed. Well, that something changing was the Illuminati and the Masonic control of science and technology to keep the truth from the American people of the Genesis narrative. I can prove that. Uh, the evidence, the next, uh, the, the secondary, I don't think I've made this clear. The next uh, DVD that will be releasing, I'm hoping to have it up on Vimeo for uh, viewing next week and the DVDs two weeks from now. It's called The Egyptian Presence in the Grand Canyon and the Pacific Rim, The Great Smithsonian Cover-Up. And what we've uncovered to date, no one has ever been able to prove. Now, I understand the attack that will come. Listen, what's that? It's just another day, another attack, but a different way. But when you start to understand that this is necessary for them to have controlled the narrative to bring on Lucifer as the savior of mankind, to belittle, denigrate the Lord Jesus Christ, and to basically assault God's throne and literally fight God for it. Now, i got to tell you something. They can, uh, the Illuminati can build cool stuff, okay? And they can take the ancient blueprints, but the same fallen angels that failed the first time and tried the second time, and now they're going for the, what is it, three strikes at bat and you're out, or three mm -hmm. strikes and you're out? Yeah. That's what Jesus said. There's never been a time like it, nor would be again, except those days be short and there'd be no flesh left alive. So, when the Lord tells me four decades ago, and I was on talk radio for 25 years as a host, and I think three years before that as a guest, that when you see the volcanoes of the world going off and cannibalism filling the headlines of the world's papers, he said, no, that the Great Tribulation is starting. Now, uh, you know, immediately the people that believe in the pre-tribulation rapture will say, well, that's not true because there's a pre-tribulation rapture and we'll be out of here. Let me tell you what else the Lord told me. He said at that time, he said, and Steve the majority of my people will not even see it until they're in the middle of it. Wow. Uh, sobering thought. And by the way, I didn't even know what the tribulation, I didn't even know what the rapture was when the Lord told me that. Yeah. Yeah. So, Doug, yeah. Here's, here's the thing. Somebody says, well, why are you so divisive? The deal is Jesus is the one that said the gospel will be the division point. It will become a division point in families. I don't want that. It will become a division point in relationships. I don't want that. But what I saw the other day in Billings, going through that with my wife, and by the way, God bless everybody. She's doing amazing. She has, listen, if I were to stump, sum up one word, this, my wife is focused and determined, and she is, how do I say this, uh, she just, the word no doesn't exist in her vocabulary. Uh, maybe in my mind. 
not in hers, you know. I mean, she's that tough. So the thing is, is that, I, again, Doug, I just want to thank you for allowing, uh, you know, Pastor Langford. And I want to thank, you know, all of the intercessors out there. I, I want to thank Romy Zarek because Romy has been fighting for her life for so many years. You'll, you'll never hear her say one negative thing. Her husband going through 21 surgeries over, I don't know, four years, five years. And then, you know, uh, I, I want to thank uh, everybody that is so, so, involved in my life that has been a blessing from Susan York and the entire fellowship, Susan and Laura York, Bruce York's, uh, you know, our oh, heavenly yeah. brother, Bruce, and and his, his you know, uh, his wife and his daughter who have just been blessings and all of you that are there. I want to thank Bieta, who has absolutely been, uh, you know, a blessing to me. And, and again, these are people that are special. I'm not trying to call them out. Even Lois Vogel Sharp, who I just met, you know, through email, and she and I never met or, or never talked to her. And by the way, do you know that because she said the same thing I said? People accused her of being a salesperson for me to sell food? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I never met her. And only when God told her to basically pray. And, she, and, and so blessings to her and blessings to each and every one of you. Those of you who sent flowers. Doug, where did you guys get the flowers that you sent my wife? Oh, that's a super secret uh, uh, place, Steve. Uh, oh, hopefully she liked them and, and they, oh, they, they were okay. Can I say something? They were overwhelmingly beautiful. Uh, Susan York said a beautiful, a beautiful bouquet. But I'm telling you point blank. You know what I love about flowers? I don't think they, you know, I, I love the color. I love the majesty. I love the contrast. But when you see it complete, I think that's how our lives should be. A beautiful fragrance, different things in our life reflecting, but ultimately opening our lives and our petals up to heaven because a man has nothing except he receive it from above. So I'm Amen. so grateful, Doug, to all of you. I mean, David Langford must have called me every hour and hour. He said, Steve, I'll be on a plane, uh, you know, in the next hour. Doug, you told me the same thing. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know something. Doug does not BS. Our critics accuse us of this, that, and the other thing. And, and, and he would have got on the plane. And I, my exact words to him is, not at this time. Thank you, but not at this time. I, I, you know, I, I, I just, it was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful that, uh, you know, you would offer that. Then David said, hey, Steve, if you need Kim, I'll put her on an airplane as soon as I can get her out of here. Uh, I've got a doctor friend, Dr. Neal, so whatever you need. So people rallied, and God bless you, William S., you know. I mean, he's just, uh, he just sent the, he said, thank you, I'll be praying for your wife or, you know, whatever. whatever. He said, thank you for sharing it. So what I'm trying to encourage is this. The devil's got plans for our destruction. God has plans for our success. There can be no assumptions any longer. If you're going out to a store to shop, then ask the Lord. Say, Lord, is this a good time to literally pray without ceasing? If you're supposed to meet someone, is this the right time? I'm not trying to make anybody paranoid, but what I'm trying to say is we need a new level of alertness to the tactics of the enemy that are coming against us. If something shows up in your bedroom and I pray it doesn't, or in your car, I pray it doesn't, you rebuke it in Jesus' name. If you can't even get your words out, start singing, there's power in the blood. There's power in the blood. Sing it in your mind, okay? Because the one thing, listen, what's going to be interesting, and I don't know how this plays out, but with everything, all of our thoughts being read and all of our uh, facial recognition, we're totally naked now. 
in in uh, sight of Lucifer, but never lose track of this, that well, our thoughts and everything, he can't take off the covering, the robes of righteousness, which the precious blood of Jesus covers us with. We are not standing naked before God. They will. We will stand clothed in righteousness. And as Henry Gruber was shown when he was taken to heaven, that our robes are made out of all the deeds. And I don't know how this works. Maybe a strand of DNA would be the only way I could even begin to define it, Doug. But all of our works that we did for Jesus, all of our, all of our acts of kindness, they're, they're, that's every thread of every robe. The robes of the righteous are going to be and instantly... You know, instantly, it's a testimony to God's grace. So in essence, you don't get to go down and get a pinstripe suit, and I get to get a chalkstripe suit. We'll have the same color, but the threads will be telling the thread. And isn't that interesting? Because even as a as an investigator, you always have to file. You have, excuse me, not file. You have to follow the thread of evidence, don't you? That's right. Absolutely. Yep. And what does what at the end of the thread? What is there usually? The answer, right? Oh, oh, yes. I'm sorry. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, I'm, I'm, I just went, you know, quantum on you. Uh, that just means I, I'm just kidding. You know, the point being is is that the threads of our life, and you know, were isn't even the scripture says were knitly formed together in the 139th Psalm. So I want to make this clear. This just is really important for everyone. You are loved of the Father if you have called upon the name of Jesus. He said, more numerous in the sand of the sea, I think there's 450,000 grains of sand, I actually looked it up, you know, in a palm full of uh, standard beach-sized sand. More numerous than all the sand of the sea are God's thoughts towards you. Well, some of you are probably going, you know, I can maybe come up with one or two things I like about my life and maybe 300 I hate. But you see, you see you as you are. You don't see you as he sees you. And the scripture is is given to us to let us know, behold, I love my children. And God is infinite. Therefore, his thoughts, his intents, his desires for our good are infinite. You think God's got a multiple choice thing in, in heaven? He goes, well, I'm limited to this one. You know, <laughs> leave them, take them, or bless them. Yeah, no, 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 no. As unique as each one of us is, and here's the thing I wish I could get across. I've never said this before in my life. But each one of our lives is a reflection of eternity because there is no, uh, uh, and I know there are twins, I'm not talking about that, but even twins have a separate identity, and even though they look alike and can share the same pain, my mother was a twin, when her pregnant uh, uh, twin sister went into labor, my mother went into labor, my mother was not pregnant. The thing is, is that twins share a commonality, they share a bonding, but in Jesus we are all, I say this, allowed to access through the gift of redemption, through the living God, a miraculous plan for our life that basically is more numerous than the sanity. In other words, it's, it's, you can't count it. You can't even quantify it, but you can't believe and receive it. And that's what I want everyone to leave tonight with from my time on, not, you know, obviously you've got other guests coming on, but that God really does love us. And we are as, how should I say this? Uh, to be an infinite reflection of him as we yield even the simplest things to him. And, you know, I'm 66 going on 67 this year. And, man, Doug, I can tell you this. I, 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 if I look back, and by the way, you know, people say, well, you know, I, 
age gracefully. I don't. I'm saying SQ does not. <laughs> you know, and I mean, um, thank God for Pastor John Kyle that gave me the scripture where God said, you know, I will be with you in your old age, you know. And I, I, I just go, Lord, this is such a dilemma. We're not supposed to be here. It was never meant for man to die, but sin produced that. So I'm learning to live with the aging process. But I also know this, Doug. The speed limit is for those that want limits. And I'm not suggesting everybody go out and break the law or do anything that will get you arrested. But you can't put the speed limit on God. You've got to say, Lord, I'm yours. I have no clue what I'm doing in life, or if you do have a clue, but direct me to wherever you will. And that's what's important, because here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. The electromagnetic net with 5G will be the ultimate net, which there will be no escaping apart except through the blood of Jesus. And for the Christians and for the followers of the living God, you are not the same as Mohammed. The guy that parades around as the anti-pope is not speaking for God. It wouldn't be it wouldn't surprise me, you know, if he came out and announced that he's converted to Islam, or it, it would not. But the right. point is this, and I love my Catholic brethren. I love everybody that loves Jesus, okay? But I'm not giving anybody a pass, you know, especially, quote, evangelical guys on TV that are still pitching their wares and basically uh, worried about uh, their sustaining their ministries when they forgot whose ministry it was in the first place. So, Doug, God bless you. Once again, thank you, everyone. I, 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 there's no words I have in my heart to say. Thank you, because I can tell you this, there was no mental stress I've ever known greater than hearing my wife in pain, on morphine, they can't give me any more after a certain point, and not one person would listen, not one, not one in a hospital, in a setting, not one would take her word for it. It had nothing to do with her hip, it was her eyes, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, I got a really wonderful interpretation of what that whole thing was about. It's not, you know, I'll send it to you, Doug, but it's not for public. God bless you, Beta. Beta, thank you for sending that to me. But again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Doug, bless you. And please take this step to the Lord in prayer. It's not true because I say it. It's true because it's true. And if I get to carry the truth, then that's based on my fact that I have been faithful to carry the truth up until this point. And, you know, when, when people say, my last statement, you've never been right, you tell me who uh, was writing about this stuff 25 years ago outside of science fiction writers, and there were some. But to the Christian community, nobody even cared. They still don't, Doug. But I'm praying that all the Hagman and Hagman listeners will pray. And ladies and gentlemen, keep Doug, keep the ministry, and support the ministry of Hagman and Hagman. Listen, you'll if you don't, you'll go to my website, and it'll be black. You'll go to Doug's website, and it'll be black. And we're under attack. John Robertson, God bless you. Great article. Doug, thank you. Goodbye. Thank you, Steve. All right. Folks, we're right back. Network break. This is the Hagman Report for today. It is Wednesday, the 23rd day of May 2018. You know, uh, I have... Uh, when you when you look at the headlines of today, when you look over everything that's taking place from the Mueller investigation, this this uh, this coup that is being launched against President uh, Donald Trump, the, the infiltration, the spying, 
of course, you gravitate to the, the phrase deep state or shadow government or permanent state, whatever it might be. And, of course, what we see today happening is an outgrowth of events of years and decades past. We talk with people who guess, uh, no matter who, who they are, uh, if they, if they have any standing within the, within the historical, uh, framework of things, many, if not all, point back to the big coup and that, that took place, in, that took place on November 22nd, 1963, with the assassination of John F. Kennedy, our 30th, 35th president. Now from there, of course, we've seen things escalate, change, and, and become just, well, it's where we are today, where we are now. And in, and I remember this as a young man, of course. I remember the, uh, the assassination. I remember the, uh, the subsequent investigation by District Attorney of New Orleans, Jim Garrison. And of course, the, the Warren Commission, but, but beyond that, the, the Jim Garrison investigation. He was a District Attorney of New Orleans. Well, enter a gentleman by the name of John Barber. Now, John Barber, who's from Canada, is is a very well-known actor, very well-known comedian, television host. In fact, he's the only performer in in TV to win Emmys for both entertainment and news shows, and he's known as one of the uh is one of the hosts. In fact, he created and founded the real reality show, I mean the first reality show, Real People. Again, creator and co-producer of that. But John Barber, and of course I remember watching that show, and never in my wildest dream would I ever think of having or speaking with that man, John Barber. Uh, now, that brings me to, to where we are today. Joe and I are so so proud to have with us John Barber, who has a documentary. And of course, the documentary has to do with the investigation um, of of uh, Jim Garrison's investigation of the JFK assassination, and the American media as well. The American media. It, this is such an incredible story. I don't want to take any more time or words away from our guest, very special guest, John Barber. He's with us now. And uh, I'm just going to bring him on. Joe and I are going to bring him on. Mr. Barber, welcome to the Hagman Report. Well, Doug, I must say, I'd like to hear you keep talking <laughs> because I loved what you were saying. I am so, so happy to be here finally to talk to you. I've long admired your show. It's wonderfully produced, and you have a wide array of guests on the show who are truly interesting, some more so than others. And I'm also speaking to you from the happiest city in the United States right now, Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh-huh. And the reason, the reason they are so happy, they are going to make history in a hundred years of professional, professional sports. No team that has ever been formed in the beginning of the year ever played for the championship by the end of the year. And the Las Vegas Golden Knights are now only four wins away from winning the Stanley Cup. They are going absolutely nuts in this town. And as we speak, the Washington Capitals are playing Tampa Bay, and the winner will will uh, be here in Vegas on Monday to start the first game of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And I, I would have to be cut back a little bit just to be a hockey junkie because that's what I wanted to be when I was a little orphan kid in Toronto was a hockey player. As a matter of fact, 
myself. Do you know the name uh, Bo Swenson? He was in the original Walking Tall. Oh, yeah. uh, he was a major star in Hollywood, was in Waldo Pepper with uh, Robert Redford. And Matthew Perry's father, John Perry, well, the three of us started the um, the celebrity hockey team, which is still going strong. We started it in the uh, 70s. Alan Thick was a, 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 a member. I'm sorry to say that. Alan died about a year ago. And then Alex Trebek. And a little tiny story about Alex Trebek. You might recall in, in the 70s, there were only three networks. If that's interesting that we'll talk about this because we're going to talk about the media later. And none of them carried hockey games. Well, Alex, who was doing quite well, lived on a, a house almost next door to Charlton Heston. He was one of the first people to get a satellite. So he would invite me up on Saturday nights to watch Hockey Night in Canada. I loved it. My wife and myself would would go up there. Well, he always, once a month, he seemed to make a trip to Canada. And he left for the weekend, and so his wife called and said, would you and your wife come up and watch Hockey Night in Canada and have a snack with me? We went up there, and of course, we're watching Hockey Night in Canada, as it so happens at these major sporting events that are important. The cameras are always looking for celebrities in the audience. So there are the cameras going around the forum, which is where the Canadians play. And who did they spot? They spot Alex Trebek. Hand in hand with the most beautiful brunette you ever saw. <laughs> and the last time Alex saw his wife was in divorce court. So every time he showed up to play hockey, not only the players, but the fans would holler, hey, Jeopardy! So that became his nickname. So there you go. Wow. Anyway, you started talking about, I'm going to tell you one, I, I would like to tell you a couple of stories because when we chatted very briefly on the phone before we started and I feel like I feel like I'm talking to a long lost brother or something it's like you could finish I could start a sentence and you could uh, you could finish it I feel that way too yep I'll tell you one very quick story about Jim Garrison that nobody will ever tell you and it will never be reported by the media ever 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 when I and all the th- wonderful things that I have done and accomplished and succeeded at in life, I must tell you, Doug, all happened by accident. And all of those things that were disasters were those things that were eminently well-planned. And you'll hear about some of those as we go along. Anyway, when I started accidentally making the first garrison tapes in 1992, as a result of Oliver Stone's making JFK, Jim Garrison was on his deathbed. About nine months later, the documentary won the San Sebastian Film Festival Award. He died that very same day. Just before he died, he could not work with me while he was on his deathbed. His daughter Elizabeth was the go-between. To the, he had five children, wonderful, wonderful children, an enormous help. And he could not talk, so his, his daughter talked for him. The stress of this, and I, I will add this about Mr. Garrison. 
Mr. Garrison had the same hobby as John Kennedy and Donald Trump. Pumping was their hobby. Okay, and that's, but that does not affect the way anybody does their job. And as a matter of fact, quite honestly, you know, John Kennedy's hobby and Donald Trump's hobby and Jim Garrison's hobby is a lot better than Eisenhower's hobby or Obama's hobby, which is playing golf, spending four hours on a field trying to put a dimpled ball in 18 little holes with a crooked stick. I don't know anybody who's had a happy round of golf <laughs> ever in my life, okay? But as Barbara Bush said, there's no such thing as bad sex. You can get it over with and you can get back to work. So that being said, Jim Garrison, Doug, had that kind of A personality. Yep. When his wife divorced him because of the stress of the Kennedy assassination and the fear of for his life, he had to have guards all the time. She she divorced him, of course. He married his Mistress, who also later left him. But on his deathbed, he called Elizabeth, the daughter, and said, I want you to get my my ex-wife over to the house here. And I want you to bring me a minister. And he gave the name of the minister, who was a good friend. And the daughter said, you're not going to have the last rites in front of your ex-wife. He says, no, you just get them over here, okay? So, and also have the minister bring a marriage license. Because when Jim's ex remarried, she married a playboy who depleted all of her finances. She was almost broke. She had to go back to work. So anyway, she showed up, and Jim Garrison said, dear, you're going to marry me. And she said, I left you. When you were alive, I'm not going to leave you now that you're dying. And he said, yes, you are, because after I am gone, you will get my pension. You won't have to go back to work. So she married. And she got the pension, which was quite substantial because he was a judge at the time. So that is a story you will never hear about Jim Garrison. It will give you some enormous insight into the character of the man. Doug, to me. The three most important traits in a human being are intelligence, talent, and character. But character trumps them all. And Jim Garrison had all three. And I knew very few people who had all three. Now, why is it that this man would choose a orphan kid from Canada, who'd been deported from the country twice, why would he choose him to be his Boswell to tell his story? And that all happened by accident. So if you don't mind, so that you're, you and your audience might get, you've got a sense of a little bit of the character of Jim Garrison. I'd lay like the foundation. To... Yeah, lay the foundation, John, because this is amazing. Folks, listen to what John Barber, our very special guest, is saying. Go ahead and lay that foundation because I think it's an enormously fantastic insight into who John Barber is, which is relevant to everything we're talking about. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you so much. I came from a severely dysfunctional family, Doug, long before it was popular. I was born in the charity ward of the Salvation Army Hospital. An unwanted child. 
1939 when uh, my when I was six and I get old now old you know how old I am if John Kennedy were alive he'd be 101 and I'd be 16 years younger I must tell you I am so old I can remember when the Dead Sea was sick so but <laughs> I can I cannot buy green bananas now. Okay, I can't buy that one. But anyway, my father left to go to the peace and quiet of World War II, and he never came back. And what happened is a series of my mother became an alcoholic. I don't know whether she was a nymphomaniac or not, but she could not ever be alone. And what was introduced into my life is it's happened with millions and millions of children like myself are uncles uncles who aren't related <laughs> yep. one of them when i was one of them was when i was 12 was beating my mother to death and i had always avoided getting involved in these because i was afraid for my own life i'm only 12 years of age and often i thought god i hope he falls asleep and i can take a baseball bat and crush his skull but then i was afraid he'd he'd wake up one night i interceded and he almost murdered me and luckily oh. i I got away. But now here I am at 12 years of age, and a lot of neglected kids need attention. And I got my attention by getting into trouble, and I became a thief. I was a very successful thief. What I was not successful at was avoiding the law and avoiding the fraud. So they kept, they caught me. Well, I dropped out of, I, I, one day when I was 12, I got so sad missing my father. My home became the hockey rink where I played, and it was a boys' town home. It was a reformatories where I played. Uh, spending five cents in a movie theater called the Manor Theater, and I lived in a library. I, I must tell you, my company, what kept me going were books. I read O. Henry and Guy de Maupassant, Somerset Mom. Gordon Sinclair, one of Canada's greatest writers. I used to listen to Lauren Green on the radio, who became Ben Cartwright in Bonanza years later. That's why I think I eventually grew up becoming a storyteller. Anyway, when I'm 12, one of the kids I play hockey with, his name was Don Lee. Don was a very religious young boy, only child. And one day I went unannounced to their house because I didn't want to announce myself because they might say no. And I asked the mother and father, who were so sweet, if they would adopt me. I said, no, you already have a mother. I said, well, she's in Buffalo with one of my uncles, you know. I'm back home living on cornflakes. And they said, no, but what you, we would love to do is, have you ever been to church? And I said, I think once. And she said, when? I said, I, I think my mother told me I was baptized, even though she called me a bastard all the time. She says I was baptized. She said, well, would you come to church with us? Now, they moved to where they were because they were across from a church. And she gave me a Bible. And I took the Bible home, and I read it every single night. And I literally memorized it. And about two weeks later, I thought, I'm going to go the first time to church, and I go with it. The least the church, I hear some baritone singing the Lord's Prayer like Pavarotti. And not knowing what to do in church, I stand and applaud. And I'm the only one applauding. <laughs> Everyone's been laughing. But I said my prayers. I want to go home after this and find my father there. 
And I so believed it would happen. I would rush home and open the door and holler, Dad, Dad, Dad. And there was no father there. And this went on for about three months. Then one day in the middle of a beautiful sermon, I thought, this is just, this isn't for me. This is just not for me. So I got up in the middle of the sermon and I walked out and I sat on the steps waiting. And of course the minister had spotted me and the Lees, of course, I had to walk by them to get out on the steps and I'm sitting there. And the minister was a really sweet, sweet man came out and he put his hand on my shoulder. As soon as he touched me, I started to cry because nobody had ever touched me. And he said, John, are you okay? And I said, uh, I said, sir, I have to tell you this is not working for me. He said, what's well, not working for you? I said, praying's not working for me. So I rush home every night and looking for my father. He's not there. So he said to me, John, you must understand God's will. Without missing a beat, Doug, I don't know where it came from. I looked up and I said, sir, I don't think I'm mentioned in it. Well, the people around started to chuckle. And he said to me, John, don't go Satan's way. And again, I said, and I don't know where it comes from. I said, sir, if you believe in Satan, that's proof that God does not exist. He said, you're being blasphemous. I said, no, because if God is all powerful, like you tell me every Sunday, he would get rid of Satan. Well, I never saw the lease again after that encounter. I'm 16 years of age. I want to be a professional gambler. And the gambling capital of the world is Las Vegas, Nevada. Isn't that strange? I go there when I'm 16 and I'm living there now. So I hop on a train. I've won $700, buy a new suit and a Stetson hat, real shiny shoes. And I'm coming down to Las Vegas. But there's an accident on, on the train on the way down. I think the authorities have called ahead to said that this felon is... John Barber is on the train. <laughs> so, so I hop off the train and get on a bus and I go to Lake Tahoe, which was so beautiful. It's like Banff National Park, Lake Louise in Canada. And I go into the Calneva Lodge. I look like I'm 25. I look like I'm rich. I got $600 left in my pocket and I got a hole in the other pocket and I start playing at the crap table and I'm holding my own. And I loved that this is what I was going to be, a professional gambler. And everyone started to look at me, Doug. And I thought maybe they could see I was not such a good boy. But they were looking past me. And I turned around. And who should I see walking in through those great glass doors? Frank Sinatra with his cape, with his overcoat draped over his shoulders like a cape. And he's arm in arm with Sam Giancana the mob boss from Chicago, whom I just saw on the front page of the paper that I was reading on the train. They're surrounded by three of their Italian Praetorian Guard. And just a week earlier, I had seen Sinatra in As the Clouds Roll By, the Jerome Kern story. You might remember he's in a white tuxedo on the pedestal singing Old Man River, as oh, yeah. good as anybody. And here he is walking in here, and who would know that 20 years later, I would become his private writer? Anyway, I decide I'm not going to gamble anymore because I, I have no, I'm not, I, I'm not emotionally attached to it. I became a gambler because I was looking for company, not for cash. And I realized that. That's why I learned how to do it. When I learned how to do it, 
It was like an out-of-body experience. So I love the end of movies made in Hollywood. So I went to Hollywood. I got a room at a boarding house. And in this boarding house were old-time actors and aspiring actors. And there was a 28-year-old accountant, wore a blue suit all the time. And he had a a, a thing in his lapel, you may remember. It said, better red than dead. And that was a time where this huge commie scare in the United States. As a sidebar, in the film, Jim Garrison talks about the setting up of uh, the Central Intelligence Agency to create a fake war foreign policy for the United States. And the first fake war was, of course, the Cold War because the Soviet Union had lost 25 million people, so they weren't a threat. That was the first big fake war. Then came Vietnam with the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. Anyway, this young man and I, and I know nothing, Nothing about politics. So one day I said to him, I, I said, hey, Sam, why don't you put a rose or a flower in your lapel st- instead of that button? Nobody wants to be dead. So he told me he was really proud to be a young Republican, and I started to laugh. And I said, that's the first time I've ever heard those two words together, young and Republican. <laughs> well, everybody at the table applauded me. Now... He starts denigrating FDR, saying God has crippled him because he's a commie and he's destroying America. So I asked him, knowing it wouldn't be his father, but does your grandfather collect Social Security? He said, why are you asking? I said, well, that was one of the programs that FDR instituted to save capitalism, okay? And he instituted these work programs, and he started calling me a commie. And I said, hey, hold it a minute. FDR did not start the recession. He inherited it, and it was started by a guy named Hoover, I think, who was an old Republican. Now everybody around me is laughing, and I said, no, I've been all around America coming down here, and I see I see golf courses named after Roosevelt. I see schools named after Roosevelt. The only thing I know of named after Hoover is a vacuum cleaner. Now I almost get a standing ovation. Well, I'm going to leave now because I'm a hit. I'm going to go for a date. I am upstairs. There's a knock on the door. It's a loud knock on the door. The landlady opens it. I rush because I'm, I'm nervous. And there are two FBI agents downstairs asking about me. I run to the bedroom, open the window, and I climb out, and I'm going to jump, and I'm going to run away. Two more cop cars pull up, FBI agents, four of them, get out and said, hey, hold it, young man, back in the room. I go back in the room, here are these two suits, identify them, and they were really nice. They were FBI agents, and they said, what were you doing? And I said, I was looking for my green card. And they said, well, could you, could we see your green card, young man? And I said, well, I don't have it. Can we see your visa? I don't have one. They said, when did you come to the United States? I said, well, I, 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 when I came, I told immigration in Buffalo I'd be here for two days. And they said, how many days ago was that? And I said, 367 days ago. <laughs> they put the handcuffs on me, and they took me downtown, and they interrogated me for an hour and realized I am not, I am absolutely not a commie, a young commie. They turned me over to immigration. They sent me to a place called Terminal Island, the most beautiful concentration camp in America. It should have been a hotel. It was in San Diego. The uh, west side of it was the ocean with all the tankers and yachts and a park 
on the left, and I was there for the first four for the first four months. And they told me that I they would not deport me. When they're going to deport you, Doug, they don't do it when you're alone. They gather up uh, 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 two dozen Canadians or Mexicans or English or French or whatever, so they have a whole boatload. So it's less expensive to send them out. And they said, if you can get uh, a voluntary departure, get on a bus or a plane, this will not be held against you because I asked them if they send me away, could I get back in? They said, not if you're deported. Mm. So I had no choice to call my mother to whom I hadn't spoken to in two years. I never wanted to be a part of her or my father. I had deleted my sister. I had deleted my brother and I was out there all by myself and I had to call collect and the only reason she answered Doug so she could say you're going to be the death of me you little bastard okay so I was now I'm sent now to additional two months but I'm not going to stay there I'm going to escape so I case the place for weeks and find out how easy it is to escape it was a hundred yards from the front door to the tower and these guards never had guns because they're illegals are no threat and I knew the basement had three doors, one leading to the ocean, one leading to San Diego, one re- leading back to the offices. I'm on the third floor, and the only way I can get out of there is in the laundry hamper. And the only one who can help me is the guy next to me, Jose, who cannot speak English. So for like a week and a half, I'm like Sid Caesar and Charlie Chaplin trying to pantomime how I need to get into this bucket. So... He finally realizes, and he's going to help me, CC one, CC. So I figure I'm going to go out on the Wednesday, the busiest day of the week. I have everything chased. I am so certain when Wednesday comes, it's a secret. Till an Englishman comes up, pats me on the shoulder and says, good luck, bloke. Well, now I know everybody knows. But like Dealey Plaza, somebody fakes, fainting by the guard near the chute. So the guards rush over and they take care of this guy and I jump into the hamper and down I go. <laughs> into a huge pile of laundry in the floor. The happiest trip I ever took in my life. I jump up, I got my, I have nothing else with me, about $8 in my pocket. I take no luggage and nothing because I'm off. I go to the door to the tower. It's locked. I kept jamming it and jamming it and it's locked. So I go to the one to the ocean. It's locked. It's locked. I do this for about an hour and I, I can't understand. It should be unlocked from the inside. And I fall down on the clothes and fall asleep. I'm awakened by a guy shaking me and he says, my God, look at this, a body in the dirty laundry. And he takes me up to the office and he asks me, he said, what do you, what were you trying to do? And I said, escape. What do you think? Well, they laughed because I was so blunt. They wanted to know who helped me, and I said, nobody helped me. I did it on my own. I don't speak Spanish. I did it on my own. So they sent me to an additional two months. So in six months, I'm going to be there. And as I'm, they're taking me back upstairs and everybody's watching, I say to them, hey, it's Wednesday. Why on earth are all the doors locked? And he starts laughing. And he says, John, it's July 4th. It's a holiday. Well, I made up my mind at that moment. Not only was I going to get back into the United States, which I did again illegally, I was going to learn everything about this country and its government. And nobody got to know more about this country than I did. So now, fast forward 28 years later, 
Real People's on the Air. It's the number one show by accident in America. 50% of all Americans are watching Real People. And I would go into the audience looking for people to say, Hi, welcome to Real People. We'll be right back with more Real People. And I see this face and recognize this voice. Kids 45 years old. I was 46 at the time. I was unemployed when I was 45. 46. I have the number one show in America. And it's Don Lee. And I tell the audience that I wanted his family to adopt me. And he tells the family, he says, John is lucky we never adopted him because of why otherwise he'd be sitting here and somebody else would be starring in his show. And the audience cheered. I got back to my office and there's a special delivery letter from the guy who arrested me, the guard at Terminal Island. And he said, John, nobody believes that you tried to escape from me 18 years ago. Would you please send me an 8 by 10 glossy and a letter explaining who you were? And I did. And that's that look. And that's the guy. That, you know, it's Angela's ashes and it's Oliver Twist and how this little crooked tiny acorn of a person, this human in Canada, became this gnarled oak tree in the United States. I have not the foggiest idea. I recall reading about a Civil War soldier who was dying, and he was only 19 years of age, and the priest was giving him the last rites, and he said to him, Father, you know what? I never got from God anything that I prayed for. But he gave me everything I needed. And you know, Doug, that's been my life. And I must tell you, even though, you know, they say we put an atheist in a foxhole, he'll soon be saying prayers. I prayed one time after that. It was the second time they had kicked me out of the country. And I was born, I was 28 years of age. I was broke and I was in a YMCA. Uh, boarding house. They had a small chapel there and I w- went into the chapel and I wasn't praying for God to change the laws or anything like that. I was praying that I would have enough strength and enough wisdom to be able to figure out legally something that no, everybody said would be, would be totally impossible. A way to get back into the United States. And I did it. And, uh, Strangely, I just finished writing my autobiography. It's called Your Mother's Not a Virgin. And, uh, <laughs> I just made a deal today with Trine Day. We're going to publish it in April. So this is sort of a blessed day for me because I got finally get to talk to you. And I, and I just made this deal with uh, Chris Milligan. And the, the book is phenomenal. But well, congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> Let's get back to the business I, I, I just, I want to, I just want, I, I, we can do that. I just want to thank you though, uh, for such great insight into the man who, into John Barber. And, and folks, um, integrity, at the beginning, he, he was saying intelligence, talent, and character. There's the character. There's John Barber. There's the guy I really admire. Thank you, John, for, for really giving us insight into, into, your your makeup and how you got here. Uh, thank well, you for that. You know what, Doug? Thank you, because I had one of the biggest literary agents in the country tell me, 
You get rid of that stuff about Canada and tell me your show business stories. I get you one of the biggest deals America's ever had for a writer writing inside stories about, you know, all these mega stars that you have, uh, have been with all these years and all these stories that you can tell. And I said, do you mean to tell me that if J.D. Salinger came to you with Catcher on the Rye or Frank McCourt came to you with Angela's Ashes, you would turn them down? I said, no. I said, I don't care if I have to self-publish. Do you know how many millions of abused children there are in Canada and the United States? And how many of these kids are looking for some kind of hope? And I said, you know, I didn't plan this. I wanted to be Jack Parr. I didn't want to be Boswell to Jim Garrison, and I didn't want to create real people. I mean, that happened by accident. And I got close to being Jack Barr, but I didn't quite make it. But in any event, getting back to Garrison, everybody is talking or has been talking about Trump's problems. You know, I think that Donald probably, the President Trump probably wakes up every morning or goes to bed every night saying, why did I take this job? I'm not in charge. Because <laughs> in, the, in the movie, Jim Garrison, I asked Garrison on camera, as you'll see, Mr. Garrison, do you think the President runs the United States? He said, I did until they murdered John Kennedy. And you said, so brilliantly at the beginning of the introduction about it all all started November 22nd, 1963. In the movie, Jimmy Stewart, Stewart, isn't that weird? Uh, (laughs) Jimmy Carter, who was like Jimmy Stewart in a way, Mr. Carter goes to Washington, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. He said as president, until we get the bottom to the bottom of what happened to John Kennedy, America will never get back to what it is and should be great again, as Donald Trump now says. There was an assassination of President Jimmy Carter in Los Angeles that you see happens in the movie. And there are two Mexicans arrested him. One of them's named Raimondo, and the other is named Lee Oswaldo Ortiz. Okay. That was a message to Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter publicly said, I've lost control of the government. And I think the same thing is happening to Donald Trump. Now, you as an investigative, a well-established investigative reporter, know that the Central Intelligence Agency doesn't have documents that say, this is how we did it. They, they, They don't exist. The two most important documents were released accidentally in the 1990s, thank thank God to JFK, Oliver Stone's movie, because he got the Assassinations Act passed. These two most important documents, never seen, are in the film, which clearly implicates the CIA, maybe not in the murder, but in the protecting of the murders, because when Garrison arrested Shaw, he said publicly, we have solved the crime. We have money changing hands. We can name names. This 67 document says we must get legal assistance to Clay Shaw. Otherwise, D.A. Garrison is going to get a conviction for perjury. The next document and the most important document was the one creating this fake word called conspiracy theorists. And they did it as a result of three people. My Brussel, 
Mark Lane, and a guy named Joaquin Justin. Joaquin Justin wrote the first book proving that Oswald was innocent. It's called The Innocence of Oswald. Mark Lane's was rushed to judgment. Now, most people said, well, he's, he's trying to make money. It's a cottage industry. He could not get it printed in the United States. It was printed in England, and he only got $1,500 for that. So that's the other document in there. And then they tried to align the conspiracy theorists with UFO people so that you cannot prove UFOs. You can prove the Kennedy assassination, but if you align these two together, those real true investigators into the crime are dragged down with those people in the Tim Foyle section. And that's why I never get involved with that. They are not worried, Doug. One iota about releasing any CIA file. They do not want Jim Garrison's 67 boxes at the House Select Committee released because they name the names of the shooters and the criminals. And I must say this about the film. I was the first person in America to review movies on the news. I was 10 years a film critic of at uh, Los Angeles Magazine. If I were to ask you, Doug, what do you think is the most important movie ever made in America? If I'd asked you this a year ago, what would you have said? Man, you're putting me on the spot here. Uh, most important movie made in America. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well, I'll take you out. Help me out here. Yeah, please. Not only did I ask a half a dozen major directors and producers and publicists in Hollywood, they all said it was The Godfather or it was Gone with the Wind. Uh, it was two or three other brilliant, brilliant pictures, all great pictures, by the way. And I said, they're not important. I said, give me an important movie. And they said, what do you mean? I said, an important movie is a movie that improves the society in which you live. It does something for that society. The only movie that did that was JFK. It got the JFK, it got the JFK Assassinations Record Act passed. Very true. After, okay. And the, the, the stories are just unbelievable. Well now, that is the most important movie. And I'm going to say this. It has been replaced by the American media and the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It is not just about the facts that you see in the film that prove that Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing to do it. And Jim Garrison says on camera, it was a no-risk operation in which they had the help of those in media so they could spread the fairy tale before the reality set in. They created the fiction, so we all believed Dan Rather. There are only three networks. Now, why is it when Walter Cronkite is the most important man at CBS News, they assign it to a street reporter? Because Walter probably wouldn't touch it. Because he mm. probably wouldn't lie. But we can see, obviously, and there's there he is saying that the third bullet, and they always say three bullets, the third bullet hits him in the head and he's tossed violently forward. Well, we believe that because that was 1963, until 12 years later, when the Zapruder film was finally shown on Geraldo Ver, Geraldo show, 
yep. with Mark Lane and with Bob Groden. And the audience was so outraged. A million pieces of mail and calls went to Congress. The Warren Report was a sham. I used to have people say to me, how is it that a comic is now telling a story about the JFK assassination? I said, because the Warren Report is the biggest joke in America. Who else but a comedian to tell that story? <laughs> so in, in any event, Congress is forced to create the House Select Committee on Assassination. Here's another story you will never, ever hear from the media. I'll tell you two or three of them quickly. One is the first guy, the head investigator assigned to the House Select Committee is a tough Philadelphia lawyer by the name of Richard Sprague. Sprague had sentenced a lot of mafia people, a lot of government people to long-term, uh, long-terms in prison. And you probably know him because you come from that, that same state. He no, had him, six, yes. Yes. He had, he had six investigators. Not one was CIA, not one was FBI, and he announced publicly, publicly, we are not having the CIA or FBI investigate this crime, which we will solve because we are going to investigate them. There are, in 1970s, Frank Church has the hearings into the CIA and the media. On camera in the film is the head of the Central Intelligence Agency in the mid-70s saying we have 400 assets writing the news for America. Now get this, Doug. This is the height of the Vietnam War when a lot of us maybe were afraid of commies and the domino effect when there was maybe a real enemy. We do not have a real enemy. These terrorists are all phantoms. They're all invented because... The military-industrial complex that Eisenhower as a general could have gotten rid of, but he left it to a 43-year-old young man, he could have gotten rid of it. They have succeeded, and they are the ones who are now giving Donald Trump and this country the worst, it, it's probably in the worst shape it has ever been, and something serious is going to going going to happen. Now the other thing is what happened then is the media assets for the CIA was called Project Mockingbird, created in the mid fifties, overseen by Alan Dulles, and accepted by the New York Times, the Washington Post, Newsweek Time, even the Reader's Digest. All had people from the CIA writing the news for them. So what do they do? They also have Congress people. They also have senators who are CIA assets. They get rid of Richard Sprague. And who do they bring in? They bring in this hack, G. Robert Blakey, who turns the entire proceedings over to the Central Intelligence Agency, writes a book about the mafia killing the president. You and I know, if the mafia actually killed the president of the United States, there would not be a pizza parlor in America. And then he compliments and dedicates part of it to the Central Intelligence Agency. Hmm. So that is the, uh, oh, that I, is the I, shape of the to this day. I, I want to add, if I may, you had mentioned the church committee. And, and isn't it interesting today we find ourselves in a position where the FISA court, 
um, is involved in one of the huge, biggest scandals, criminal scandals in American history of, of our lifetimes, aside from the JFK assassination and, of course, um, what, what you're talking about with Garrison. But it, it was as a result of the church committee that we, that, that the FISA court was formed. And I thought that was rather interesting given the facts of today. Um, and folks, our, our guest is John Barber. He is, the man behind the American media and the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy, of all the media, the, the films, DVDs, books, whatever, folks, I, I, I've watched this, I think, four, four different times. It's, it's an incredible film. Um, get your, get, purchase this film. The, uh, uh, my goodness. It, it's broken down into chapters. John, you, you've done such a marvelous job with this. Um, I, I, I don't, I, I cannot give it a high enough praise. Um, and you, this is you our know, guess, you said something, Doug, Doug, you said something really interesting. And it's only two dollars. I don't make any money from this. I've spent four hundred thousand dollars. You know, people call me a conspiracy theorist. You know, I'm not. I'm a storyteller, and I accidentally came across the greatest story in the world, which is the murder. And the greatest story in American history, including the Civil War, and that's the murder of John Kennedy and how we were taken over by this. And, you know, on, uh, there are a lot of people who should know better who say, well, Garrison lost the case, but he didn't lose the case. He lost, he had two charges against uh, Clay Shaw, and one of them was a perjury charge, and he says on camera, that was our most important charge, and we won it. But once the jury found him guilty, the government stepped in and stopped him again. But then get a load of how venal they were at the media, especially NBC. A fellow named Walter Sheridan in uh, 1968, before the trial, is assigned by the CIA and the FBI and NBC to go down to New Orleans, bribe Perry Raymond Russo, the key witness one of the key witnesses a Garrison had, they find him a job for $50,000 at an insurance company in Los Angeles. They want him out of Jim Garrison's jurisdiction. So before, before, uh, before this young man is going to be interviewed by Walter Sheridan, he goes to Jim Garrison and says, I'm going to meet him at a motel. And Mr. Garrison says, would you wear a wire? So he wore a wire. So all the bribe and everything is on wire. He brings criminal charges against Walter Sheridan and NBC. David Sarnoff, the president of NBC, should have been in prison. The license should have been revoked. But what they did instead, they prevented the criminal charges by giving Garrison supposedly equal time at 11.30 at night. We used to have... Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. When John Kennedy was killed, 1963, a company could only own five television or five radio stations. At that time, there were 1,500 different owners of television and radio stations. The worst president in American history, Bill Clinton, who repealed NAFTA, he's, uh, who signed NAFTA, repealed Glass-Steagall, but the worst thing he did destroy our freedoms. I mean, Bush de- uh, destroyed Iraq with bombs. Clinton destroyed it with pens, which proves the pens mightier than the sword. He signed the Communications Act, which now put 95% of all our media in the hands of six corporations. You repeal the Communications Act and let 1,500 other Americans, it's called the public airwaves, 
listen, Doug, I know you and dozens of other wonderful people on the Internet. You should be on national television or national radio because it's called the public airways, but it's not any longer. It's the corporate airways. And because of Garrison's appearance on NBC, the owners of the United States, which are not you and me, this is a kleptocracy, it's a corporatocracy, the owners of the United States said we can no longer have a fairness doctrine and listen to the truth on national television. I am a perfect example of this. This, If you had a movie or a book when I was a critic and I hammered it, the producer or writer could call and get equal time. You probably, I know you're not nearly that old, but you might remember the fairness doctrine. There was a movie called Soylent Green. And I absolutely decimated it. And as Don Rickles found out, if you're really cruel, you can get big laughs, and it's easier to be cruel than it is to be clever. Mark Twain was clever, Don Rickles and myself sometimes cruel. So I decimated the movie, but I, on the air, but I felt so bad about how cruel I was because people work on this stuff. So then I said, you know, I should say something really, really nice if I can about the film. The sets are absolutely beautiful. And then I added, but they'd be more beautiful if they'd been placed in front of Charlton Heston. Well, I'm telling you, we got phone calls in 20th Century Fox demanding equal time. It was turned by, down by the courts in LA. Two years later, it's turned down by the Supreme Courts in California. Five years later, it's the only case of its kind in history heard by the Supreme Court of the United States and they tell the producer, John Barber's reviews were of no public importance, so you do not get equal time. <laughs> wow. So there, there you go. But that, wow. that's what we had a chance at. And you would have never had a Bill O'Reilly. Well, you would have never had a lot of these loud mouths because you could never pontificate a point of view on television or radio at that time without giving equal time to the opposition party. That no longer exists. Now they're all cor- they're, they're mouthpieces for corporate America and a faltering empire. And you know, uh, you, I, I got to tell you, I, I'm not a big I'm not a big fan of the fairness doctrine for other reasons. But I got to tell you, you're not wrong in, in, in this this corporate the the creating the, of the corporate ch- uh, choke points there. Uh, with respect then, to the, then tell, Doug, Doug, then tell me uh, what about because I, uh, well, I, 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 I tell uh, me about why you don't agree with the fairness doctrine. Uh, well, I, I, I don't agree with. I, it's not that I don't agree with the fairness doctrine in terms of its intent. I don't agree with how it was instituted. Um, of course, that would be a, a, a whole another show. But, but I, I do agree with the fact that we need. Uh, a, a better balance here. When you've got, when you, as you had pointed out, when you've got six corporations now compared to, you know, uh, controlling the narrative, controlling the stories. Yeah. We have to get yeah. away from that. Yeah. So, so uh, again, I, I, you know, um, going into the, uh, the point by point of the fairness doctrine would uh, get away from our, our discussion, but bottom line, I agree with you. I just don't, I, I, I don't agree with the, uh, the application. Yeah, I, should I, say. I can, I can, I can see exactly what you mean. And one a more little tidbit about uh, Jim Garrison and the Warren Commission. Clay Shaw was a raving, if you can use that adjective to describe a homosexual. He was deeply into S and M. 
Yes. You see that in the movie, Garrison ordered his staff. You report none of this. You say none of this in the courtroom. His sex life has nothing to do with the crime which we are charging him with. You do not say a word. To protect Clay Shaw's rights, he went through a grand jury. And then to, co- to protect them even further, they assembled a three-judge independent panel to hear the case. And a fellow named Diamond, who was Clay Shaw's brilliant attorney, and working also closely with the CIA and those who had infiltrated Jim Garrison's office, there were about eight of them actually who had infiltrated his office, to prove his client's innocence, he introduced the 26 volumes of the Warren Report. And the three-judge panel said this is not an investigation. This report is hearsay and therefore not admissible in a court of law. You never heard that and will not hear that to this day that it's been already ruled inadmissible. You know, I had to check. when When I found that out, and again, our guest John Barber, the man behind the movie, The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Uh, by the way, for, for a few dollars, two dollars, get yourself a copy of this movie. But I learned that in the movie. I did not know that. Um, by, by the way, a brilliant expose about the efforts, the investigatory uh, results efforts of Jim Garrison by the man who knew Jim Garrison, perhaps the best, John Barber. Uh, in terms of his work with the JFK assassination, but you know, I, I the, tw- hearsay twenty six volumes, and uh, I'm trying to wrap my I'm still trying to wrap my head around that fact. You wow. want to know something, Doug? I tell you, sometimes somebody can say something to you unrelated to the evidence. I mean, he had a copy of the death certificate signed by uh, Doctor McClellan at Parkland Hospital. Unfortunately, I, we were so busy we didn't get a chance to photograph it. But you cannot find that death certificate in the Warren report is buried in the sense it's a gunshot wound to the right temple. Okay? But I asked Mr. Garrison, I said, Mr. Garrison, you are not aligned with any political party. You're a former FBI agent yourself. You're in the Air Force Reserve and you were at Dachau when Dachau was liberated by the Allied forces and there on your wall, the only picture in your office, is you sitting on the fence at Dachau and underneath you have written, lest we ever forget. And I said, why? Because he believed the Warren report. He says so in the camera. He said he was in the military. He was used to authority. Why would he think that his government would lie about that or let alone participate in the, in the murder? I, and as a sidebar, my mentor as a comic was Red Fox, uh, which is strange. Uh, because he was, he had a reputation for doing filthy material. I was the first one to put him on television to do entertainment, which we may get to later, because I knew he could be clean and clever. One of his lines was, heroes ain't born, they're cornered. Well, Jim Garrison was cornered by an accidental a meeting with Congressman Hale Boggs, a dissenting member of the Warren Commission. Oh, J- John, hold, hold, hold that thought. We're, we're up against the top of the hour network break. we got to take this. It's okay. three minutes. This is a fantastic stopping point. Our guest, 
John Barber going to be with us for the next hour. Jim Garrison uh, laying it all out in the American media and the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy, how prescient it is for today. What an incredible guy John Barber is. This is a treat for me and I know all of you. Stay with us. Network break. We'll be right back. Just what kind of thriller predicts the future? In three days in the belly of the beast, Daniel Holdings wrote about the God Particle before CERN actually discovered the God Particle. In As the Darkness Falls, Daniel wrote about an Islamist terrorist confederacy that rose up out of Syria and declared a caliphate three years before ISIS was ever heard of. In his newest novel, Between the Veil, Daniel talks about a space between dimensions where supernatural beings can walk. He says that these novels are a warning from the creator to his creation. Will war come to America? Will the world's economies collapse? Are we looking at increased earthquakes and volcanic activity? Will the United States fall into civil war? You can find all of Daniel's work at his website, DanielHoldings.com. That's DanielHoldings.com. All of these things and more are talked about in Daniel's books. To find out what's coming next, go to DanielHoldings.com. Worldwide demand is making coconuts one of the highest-yielding cash crops available today. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and many high-net-worth individuals have invested billions of dollars into coconuts for strong growth and solid long-term income. Yields could be as high as 18% or more per year. Capital appreciation and exceptional income for up to 60 long years would be an absolutely brilliant investment to pass on to future generations. Diversify wisely with direct ownership of fully managed coconuts on prime farmland close to the beautiful Costa Rican border. For more information, qualified accredited investors should go to ProfitsInCoconuts.com or phone 855-888-6288. That's 855-888-6288. This announcement does not constitute an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offer made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288 or visit ProfitsInCoconuts.com. ProfitsInCoconuts.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood.
Welcome back to this edition of the Hagman Report. You know, I I am so absolutely uh, overjoyed. I, I don't know what the word is to be able to speak with and to have as a guest John Barber. John Barber, of course, is a, a, a star in his own right. But one thing in particular, John Barber, uh, and and you heard him describe his early years and and how he got to be John Barber. Uh, it's, it's so important to the, to the larger story and how he, how he came to know and, and, uh, work with, and I use that deliberately, work with, uh, Jim Garrison. So Jim Garrison's story could be told. And the, the movie that would be film, the documentary that we're talking about, of course, is American Media and the Second Assassination of John F. Kennedy. It's one of the most valuable pieces of film, in my view as an investigator you will ever ever see and it's something that that of all, of all the of all the of all the assassination stories or accounts or whatever out there few focus on what jim garrison had uncovered and what jim garrison had uncovered through his work was just this un well it's believable but this incredible account of what really happened in, in my view, in, in looking at the, the documentary evidence. So with that, again, John Barber, it is such a great pleasure to have you. I, I hope I, I don't seem to be sappy. I'm not. It's just, it's, it's so historical. Hey, hey listen, you know? Doug, I, f- I feel just as sappy because how, how many times do I get the opportunity to be on such a terrific show with such a vast audience? to be able to tell Jim Garrison's story. It doesn't happen all the time. Listen, I entered this in the 22 film festivals. You know, it costs nearly $100 to enter a film festival, the most prestigious in the world, and they all turned them down. I even entered it in the Moscow Film Festival, hoping that Putin would do for me what he did for Trump. They they also turned it down. But in any event, I, I was saying about Mr. Garrison, knowing what he knew he bought three sets of the Warren Report. He had a set in his office, a set in at home, and a set in the car. And uh, Lou Ivons, his lead investigator, said he memorized the whole thing, and indeed he did. But I asked him, Mr. Garrison, whatever made you think you could take on the federal government? And Doug, without missing a beat, he leaned toward me and he smiled and he said, John... I think as a kid I saw one too many Frank Capra movies. And my God, Doug, that was me as a kid seeing Jimmy Stewart. I guess that's why I called President Carter Jimmy Stewart because he was sort of, sort of like that. But you know, uh, Donald Trump, I think that Donald and President Trump should forget about building the wall across the southern border to keep all those illegal aliens out. I think we should all get together and help him build a wall around Washington, D.C., and the Senate and the Congress and lock them all in there till they either drown in the rising swamp or they drain it so that they can walk out because there is something going on that we are not totally aware of. And I know that a number of people have talked about the fact that they are concerned about President Trump's life, and that may be indeed true, but they would never pull another Dallas. It would probably be poison. It'd be a, it would be a, a heart attack or something like that. So, yeah. uh, but the, 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 
the the American media in the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy came about again by accident because when Donald Trump and the other uh, uh, 11 dirty dozen Republicans were running for office and I would watch the debates, all the subject came up about the fake news all the time, the fake news. And I thought, where did I hear that? I've heard that someplace before. I had taped Jim Garrison in 1981 for a show, which I will tell you about in a minute. It was a three-hour interview. And a lot of it was about the media. But in my original documentary, uh, it's just called Simply the Garrison Tapes, I talked very little about the media because at the time, Doug, for every hour, this is from 1979 to 1982, uh, when uh, Real People was destroyed and Jim Garrison was libeled uh, on national television by a fellow named George Slaughter, who uh, uh, owned Real People, and he also uh, was the owner of Laugh-In and co-creator of Laugh-In. The real creator of Laugh-In was an English drunk by the name of Digby Wolf, uh, which very few people know about. That is all in the book. But in, 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 in any event, I went back to the, the videos that I had and the reason I didn't talk about the media, because for each hour I was making $22,000 plus an additional 11000 for each free run. So I was getting $33,000 an hour. I mean, why why would I want to be back in the media? But I did want to tell Mr. Garrison's story. So your audience, if you go to YouTube forward slash johnbarbersworld.com, not only can you see that documentary for nothing, You'll see the second greatest documentary ever made about a performer called Ernie Kovacs, television original genius. The best documentary ever made about a performer was called Searching for Sugar Man. A young man from Europe made it uh, on his phone when he was 33, won an Academy Award for that film and committed suicide, sadly. But uh, you can see that. You can see me with Red Fox and Frank Sinatra and a lot of stuff, and it's all free. And if you're interested in this film, and I will tell some of you, there is, as I said before, an ancient Persian proverb. If you're going to tell the truth, you better have one foot in the stirrup. Well, I will tell a lot of you, to paraphrase Jack Nicholson and a few good men, you can't handle the truth. Because a lot of you realized <coughs> that when George Bush was getting ready to invade Iran, some of you may have even voted with your feet, as they did in 1968, to stop the illegal Vietnam War. There were a million and a half Americans marching in Washington, in Pittsburgh, in Louisiana, San Francisco, Chicago, Los Angeles. It didn't mean anything. And the reason it doesn't mean anything, you don't count. Your vote does not count. It's like only one share of General Motors. I own General Motors. I get to vote all the time. But I don't get to vote on the design of the car or how many miles the carburetor gets. I have nothing to say about it. You have nothing to say about how this country is run. And there isn't a political scientist in America now who will call what we live in a democracy. They won't even call it a republic anymore. The kindest thing they can say about America now, it's an oligarchy. And sadly, a lot of them say 
we have become what Ronald Reagan once called the Soviet Union, the evil empire. We are a bunch of big bullies. And I'm just anti-bully. You know, and I just love this country, but there's, there's only real freedom of speech if you don't have a very large audience. I mean, this show should be on national radio or national television, as should a bunch of other shows. But it's not going to happen unless they repeal the Communications Act. Yeah, there the, the definitely has to be changes, absolutely. And thank you for that vote of confidence, by the way. It, it means a lot coming the, from, from you. I'm telling you, it's important whether the people agree with you or not. You know, you have a right to have that platform. And I remember, gosh, when I was a kid, I used to hear some, I think it was a Catholic priest who was so anti-Semitic, I was surprised the guy was alive. But he had a national, he was one of the top radio shows in America in the 1930s. Father Coughlin, I think the guy's name was. But he, and then you hear racists all over the place. Okay. Give us some better arguments so that we can understand the society in which we live. You know, when, when I was, uh, preparing, you know, when I was, I guess I was 29 or 30, I finally got the, a chance to go before the Consul General, uh, at the American Embassy on Spadina Avenue in Toronto. And I must tell you, I had prepared Everything I knew the Congress and every congressman's name, every senator's name, the capital of everything. I knew everything about Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Paine, by the way, the, the intellectual founder of the United States of America, published 50,000 copies of Common Sense and gave every nickel to George Washington to feed and arm his, his army. Uh, I mean, I knew everything. So I, I would, I, I was waiting for this. Lady, it was a lady, 50 years of age, a very nice lady. She asked me only one question, and it never occurred to me that that was a question that she was going to ask. And the question was simply, Mr. Barber, why would you want to go to the United States? And I had never thought about it. But you want to know something? It is the only country in the world that's built on a law called the Constitution. The Bill of Rights. It is the only country in the world made up of every other country in the world. It is the country of second chances. So anyway, I started this whole speech about why I wanted to be in America. Because, you know, it was not a second chance for me because it's a first chance because I never had a first chance in America, in Canada. I didn't want to be any place but there. And I would, if I had to break the law again, they'd have to deport me again. Now, they don't give you permission to enter. All they give to you is permission to apply. That's how tough the process is. But she said to me, Mr. Barber, I don't want to be the one to stand in the way of your American dream. So I will give you permission to apply. Wow. I bawled like a baby. She couldn't stop me from crying. I had to leave the office. I was so excited, I ran up the street, jumping up and down and screaming. I couldn't believe And I'm broke. I got no job. I got nothing. But I'm going to the United States. And it was around 1960. And I got into America, and America was changing because they had just elected a young John Kennedy. And John Barber got a chance to be in a place. You know, there are some places in the world they're like geographical G-spots where you're exactly meant to be. And I ended up in an apartment complex 
in Studio City in Los Angeles, and my downstairs neighbor, uh, it was used as an office, was a fellow by the name of Mort Lockman, who was Bob Hope's head writer for 25 years, and he became another one of my mentors along with Red Fox. But what I would like to tell you is how I first met Garrison, which was by accident. Can I tell you that? Yes. Sure. Oh, yes. I was a comic, a very successful comic at the time. And as I said, at that time, 1970, it was now up to seven corporations could could own a station. But what was happening in Los Angeles, there were huge Chicano marches in Los Angeles over police brutality and not enough representation and things like that. And uh, they uh, were protesting license at KBC. And they had a morning show, which was a clown show, which at one time I had produced, but that's a different story. That was my first real job in America, was producing a clown show. So anyway, they dump all this, and they're going to do the SOP to the FCC and create a public service live morning news show. And they're auditioning hosts. This is a, a wonderful story about a wonderful man. The fellow's name was Mario Machado, and anybody living in Los Angeles or Southern California will know the, the name, an intensely handsome young man. And he was Latin Chinese descent, descent wrote, spoke 12 languages, including Japanese, Mandarin, Spanish, everything. So he was everybody's ethnic, and everybody wanted to hire him in 1970. And he was well known for voiceover commercials, really a beautiful voice. And I was working as a comic at a, working out material place called the Ice House with Steve Martin. He was starting out there at the time. Also, anyway, Mario stops me afterwards and he said, John, I just auditioned over at KBC. They're starting a morning show because of the challenges by the Chicanos. They may lose their license. So they're doing this for the FCC. Why don't you go audition? I said, well, you just auditioned. He said, yeah. And I said, well, Mario, they have to take you because of all the riots and marches going on in town. He says, I, mean, I know, I might get the job, but you're better at it than I, I am. And I said, Mario, I know nothing about news. He said, that's what you talk about on stage. I said, they're jokes. I said, I read the paper for the jokes. I can write great jokes. I know nothing about news, okay? So anyway, he said, here's Brad Lockman's name over there. Brad is a very successful producer to this day. Anyway, he said, give him, give him a call. So I called. I am one of 40 people auditioning. Most of them are successful names. And I got the job. And the first person to call me to congratulate me was Mario. And I was so thankful I couldn't believe it because I wanted to be Jack Parr. And the reason I wanted to be Jack Parr is the most unbelievable reason in the world. Until I saw Jack Parr on television, Doug, I didn't know people talked to one another. I didn't even know people had conversations. I thought it was either fist fights or screaming. And I thought, my God, a guy can earn a living doing that. But what Jack Parr did is he did a great monologue at the top of his show. And he was by far head and shoulders the best of them all. You must remember Jack. Oh, he had oh, intellectual yeah. comics. He beat Carson and all of them to an absolute pulp. So that's why I became a stand-up, so that I could do that at the top of my talk show. So anyway, we do the show. We start out with, we have a cat, we have four of us, the staff, do an hour and a half live every single day. 
I had Muhammad Ali when the whole country wanted him arrested and put in prison because he wouldn't go to Vietnam to kill the yellows when the whites were causing I remember that. Yep. I had Jane found on when they want Barbara Walters wanted her tried for treason for crying out loud, calling her Hanoi Jane and yep. stuff like that. I had I had everybody on who had a story to tell, whether I believed them or not. And some of them I believed and some of them I didn't, but I always treated them all graciously. So in nineteen and and, and I know that Garrison's arrested Shaw in nineteen sixty seven. And he got him to trial on January 29th, 1969, which happened to be the birthday of my son. A child I never wanted because I thought I would be like my parents. But it mm. turned out to be the biggest blessing in my life because while I had a career before, now more importantly, I had a life. And if I, if there's such a thing as uh, reincarnation. I want to come back as my son because he had the greatest, greatest parents in the world. And on his own, on his own, he went to Hollywood 10 years ago because I couldn't help him. I was persona non grata. On his own, he has now become one of the head writers and co-executive producers of Criminal Minds. 14 really? Year hit. Yeah, a 14-year hit on CBS. And he did it entirely on his own. So anyway, people, we would talk about Garrison and, 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 uh, and the trial. And I kept saying, you know, the government, if the guy has nothing, they're calling him an idiot. Why don't they get out of his way and let him fall his, on his face as, as an idiot? Okay. But they never got out of his way for, for two years. Well, they did. He, he lost the trial and I didn't know that he'd won the perjury trial. I didn't know anything. He wrote a book. His biggest dream in his life was to be a writer. When he was a kid, he didn't want to be a law officer. He wanted to be a writer. That was his hobby. So he wrote Heritage of Stone. It was in the Larry Edmonds bookstore, used bookstore, and I'm browsing through it, and there I see it. And I, Is this the garrison, this guy that was in New Orleans? And indeed it was. I read the book that afternoon, standing in there reading it. The next day I'm on the phone to New Orleans. And this bass baritone answers the voice, and I said, could I speak to Mr. Garrison, please? He said, speaking. I said, Mr. Garrison, hi, my name's John Barber. I have the most popular morning show live here. We've instituted taking phone calls, which no other show does. I'd love to have you on for 45, first 45 minutes and open the phones the next 45. And the first thing he says, he said, you must be the other one. He said, I said, out of what? He said, I only sold two copies of that book. And so, anyway, he, he says to me two or three times, John, you'll never get away with it. You don't see me on Edward television. You'll never get, I said, no, I guarantee you're going to be, you're going to be on the show. So he agrees to be on the show and we talked for a half an hour. And he said, John, it's 1970. Do you know that 78%, according to the Gallup and the Harris polls, still don't believe that Oswald acted alone, uh, that uh, that he had to have an accomplice of some sort, or maybe he didn't do it. He said, but the worst thing about their poll is they said only 23% of Americans want another real war report investigation. He says, what does that say to you about us? Without missing a beat, I said, Mr. Garrison, I know what my mother and father did in the rumble seat of the car or on the pool table or in the bedroom, but don't, don't ever tell me my mother's not a virgin. Well, he started, 
he started to laugh. He said, could I quote you? And then he, he did many, many times. Nobody ever knew or heard of it before. And so that became the title of my autobiography, which happily today we, we made the deal with. So anyway, I'm fired and I think it's show business. I have, it has nothing to do with, you know, a garrison. It's show business. People don't have permanent jobs. So I become a critic at Channel 11 over at Metro Media. And one of the things we got, we got the feed from The Tonight Show, which used to go to uh, New York. And everybody would stop and watch Johnny Carson do his monologue because he did great monologues. And we'd watch, see who the guests were, and then we'd get back to work. Well, this is September, I believe it's 29, 1972. And the Munich massacre occurs. I'm a killer. And fortunately for ABC, they have this very articulate fellow who I can't remember his name of. He was their sports announcer, but he was so brilliant and so bright. He handled that tragically enormously well. Well, I started to think about Jack Parr because if that had been Jack Parr, Jack Parr wouldn't even have the orchestra playing. He wouldn't have an announcement. He would just come out and start talking from the bottom of his heart about what had happened to these Israeli athletes in Munich. So now on comes the feed of the Tonight Show. So we're all waiting, breathless, to hear what Johnny Carson is going to say about this massacre. And he doesn't say anything. He does a joke about uh, Doc Severinsen's drinking, about Ed McMahon's jacket, and a lot of none. And and people start booing the screen. Well, I was going to do a movie review that night, so what I did is I tore up the movie review. Sounds like a bad scene out of a movie. And so I wrote a four-minute piece about what it must be like to be a Jew in the world today. And it ran on the 10 o'clock news. We had... 500 phone calls before midnight for copies of it. I got a call from the general manager. He says, you're going to repeat that at noon to, uh, the next day. And I said, why? I already did it. He said, we did not tape it. You're going to come back on so we can tape it. So we mm-hmm. did that. And the, the bottom line of it, 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 I was approached by the United Jewish Appeal. I was made an honorary guard, guardian. They planted a tree in Israel for me and they used it and they asked permission to use it as the official fundraising film for the United Jewish Appeal. They did for two years. It raised $32 million. That is something that you can also see if you go to my website to see the original Garrison. So in any event, I end up having phone calls with Mr. Garrison about that, about Vietnam and he called me after my appearance with Sinatra uh, on The Tonight Show. Uh, by this time, I was Sinatra's private writer. And and one of the things I wrote is referenced in Kitty Kelly's book, His Way. Uh, she refers to a nasty letter from Sinatra to People magazine, and I was the one who authored it. Every time I wrote, whether it was a joke or two pages, I got 10 crisp $100 bills. And I always refused to take it. He said, John, if you don't take it, I don't talk to you anymore. So that was that was it, and I did that for four years. So anyway, knowing the trouble I had with Carson, he booked me on the show despite Carson. One of the lines that I had on, I had two lines on stage. I said, you know, comics don't have to write jokes 
about politicians anymore to get laughs. All they have to do is quote them. Which got applause. And then I said, you know, we just witnessed Watergate, which is an event that may have just put America on the brink of democracy. And that got another hand. Well, afterwards, Garrison called me and said, can you send me that stuff? So I sent it to him. I never met him. But now I have real people on the air. And what happens when something like this happens? The Freddie Silverman, the head of the network, an absolute and total idiot. When he was at CBS, he said, this show is never going to work. Get rid of it. So he dumped Hollywood Squares, and it ended up being NBC's first show for about 20, 20 years. So that's how stupid that man was. Anyway, he... He calls George Slaughter, who owns real people. But as I say, he's the Jerry Jones. He owns the stadium. But I'm the team. I'm the quarterback. And they say, can you do a takeoff on network? Could you do a, an information entertainment show like network, but real? Okay. And, uh, and so, yeah. So, uh, call it Speak Up America and do a lot of people on the street. And the first review of the show, it was dreadful. It was, the critic called it throw, throw Up America. And he was absolutely right. And George kept begging me, please, will you come here and help me write some of these stories? I said, George, I'm trying to keep real people on the air, for God's sake. He had just t- signed Peter Billingsley, a 12-year-old kid, to be one of the posts. And I had a screaming match with him because I said, you can't have 12-year-olds telling people's stories. But he said, I just signed him because he thought he had this uh, Caucasian, there was a, a, a successful show, kid show, Gary something. I forget the kid's name, Black Kid. Oh, and I remember said, that. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, he said, I, I got okay. the Caucasian one and they're going to make a contract with me to do that show, which they never did. But we we used to get into that kind of screaming screaming match, but in any event, by accident again, I'm reading page 13 of the Los Angeles Times, a small paragraph that says the House Select Committee has concluded that four shots have been fired. Now this is a year after the House Select Committee findings, which were never published in the first place, and it's in the it's a year later and it's a paragraph. And I pick up the phone immediately, and I call Mr. Garrison. I never called him Jim, and, 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 and even though I was older than he was. And Mr. Garrison, Mr. Garrison, do you feel vindicated? And he said, John, I feel like a blind man has got a small trophy in a very dark room. Only I know I got it. <laughs> so I said, well, listen, I'm going to come down. I said, uh, you must be getting tons of phone calls. He said, phone calls from whom, he said. I said, from Huntley and Brinkley and all of these guys, Eric Severide, all these guys. He said, he said John, you're the only one who's called me. Yeah. And you're not even in the news, for God out loud. I said, well, I'm going to get you in the news. I'm going to come to New Orleans to do your story. And he said, John, I haven't talked to anybody about the case since I lost it 10 years ago. And I said, well, you're going to tell it to me. He said, you're damn right I am. Come on down. So I went down to New Orleans. I did a bunch of stories about street performers for real people. Sat with Mr. Garrison for three and a half hours. On the show, Speak Up America, we had hired Herb Brooks, who was the coach of that great hockey team that beat the Russians, and a child evangelist by the name of Marjo Gortner, who'd grown up to become an actor. 
He was a very famous child evangelist. So he was perfect to play Howard Beale or Peter Finch on this television show, and he was assigned to do the Garrison story. So interviewing Mr. Garrison, I said, Mr. Garrison, how many shooters do you think there were in Dealey Plaza? And he said, John, there were probably three shooters. It was triangulation. It's a military operation. Two in front, one in back. Nobody, probably the Dalbtex building. Nothing to do with book depository because that's where they had secreted the patsy. He said, usually they're just two on a team. But there's this thing called operate, it's called, uh, the family jewels. It's a CIA program about how to kill heads of state, which they did. They killed Mossadegh in 1953, democratically elected because he canceled a British Petroleum's uh, outrageous oil contract so that his people could own it. And and the Dulles brothers and Eisenhower said, well, he's got to go, and he went. And we did that to every country in Latin America. We killed them or we bribed them. It was that simple. And, of course, family jewels, if you're getting a rids of head of state, one of the heads of state getting in the way of the CIA because there was no way that John Kennedy was going to go into Vietnam and you see it on camera in the movies and the front lawn talking to Walter Cronkite and saying it's their war. We'll supply the munitions. Okay, at the time there were 12,000 what Eisenhower called advisors and he said I'm taking out a thousand a month and there will be nobody there in a year except those people fighting for their own country. So, in any event, in any event, that's what he said. So, he said they probably had a radio man, because it's an important kill. And as you see, one of the tramps, one of the tramps, forget his name offhand, it's a very common name, he said he was the one carrying the radio. And you can Sturgis, see the water. Uh, no, no, God, I wish I could remember his name. He's the guy who drew up or, or, or printed up all the fake ser- secret service pins and oh, badges yeah. that were issued that day. God, why can't I remember his name? Because it would make a great movie. Because he did this. He didn't know anybody who was going to get killed. They don't tell anybody they're killing. Then I asked him, okay, how many people actually knew that Kennedy would not be coming out of Dealey Plaza? with his head intact. And he extrapolated the shooters and the people at the CIA, couple in the media, and he said 32. Probably 32 for sure knew. So I edited the first, there was so much material for Speak Up America. I edited the first part, and the first part he talks about the innocence of Oswald, how the paraffin test uh, uh, proved that he hadn't fired the rifle, that there was an other a rifle, the Mauser, that was found by two police officers. The th- now, this is weird. Ordinarily, you have a full house audience for any show at NBC. Somehow or other, word got out that Jim Garrison was going to be on this program for eight minutes talking about Oswald. You could not get in there. It was as though the Pope or the President were there. And when it was over, they were cheering. They had never heard this kind of stuff on the air ever. Now I have to do part two. Now in part two, at at the time, and anybody who's tried to build a house has had this problem. I was making so much money. I I, And I never went out. My wife never bought jewels. We never bought a car. I never owned anything because everybody that I knew that owned stuff 
was really owned by the stuff they owned. They had to keep supporting it. I had nothing. Just, and I was going to build this great new, new house. So we rented a property and moved in. So when the second part aired, my wife and son and I are sitting watching it. Up comes Marjo Gardner and he leans forward and he said, Mr. Garrison, how many shooters do you think there were in Dealey Plaza? In the middle of the night, George Slaughter had called Donna Canner, who was my field producer, into one editing room and re-edited my story. So when Marjo Gortner said, Mr. Garrison, how many shooters were there in Dealey Plaza? Mr. Garrison is saying, about 32. And then my phone rang. I screaming at the set. What on earth was that? I'm screaming. And it's George Slaughter. Well, in those days, we had answering machines, and I accidentally recorded Slaughter talking about what a lunatic that uh, Garrison was and that he proved it. And I started screaming and cursing at him. I hope he sues you. He'll own your ass. He'll own NBC. And I've got it recorded. I slammed on the phone, and I called Mr. Garrison. The third time in my life, Doug, that I am bawling. I can barely talk. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed. And that man comforted me. He said, John, 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 calm down. I'm used to it. I said, no, but you can sue him. I have it. I'll send you the tape. You will own NBC. You'll put slaughter in a business. You will get millions. He said, John, if I sued everyone who maligned me illegally, I'd never see my family. I'd never get into a courtroom. We love your show. Just send us some real people t-shirts. That'll make me happy. Well, that made me ball even more. And the next day, Slaughter and I almost got into a vicious fight. I mean, really vicious because of the man's smugness. And I don't know why on earth he ever did it. Now, Pete, I knew he was very friendly with Nixon. And then, of course, he was a producer of George Bush's second inaugural ball. I don't mention any of this stuff in the uh, in the film because it sounds like sour grapes or leads to, leads to speculation. So I have no reason why he did it. I won't even speculate on that. But that was the death of real people because I was the storyteller. And, and George and Slaughter had, owned, or George Slaughter had control of real people. You called him out on that's the... That's right. Editing. Oh and, and, my God! I mean, it was wow. vicious. I, uh, uh, Donna Cantor came into the office, uh, bawling and apologizing, saying, "Johnny ordered me not to call you. He ordered me not to call you." So, and then again, I had real people originally with ABC. It was called National Graffiti, and I had created it uh, working with Danny Arnold. Danny Arnold had a production company, and he owned Barney Miller. He was a co-creator, Barney Miller. And he was a huge fan of mine, but especially he was a fan of my wife. He was always after my wife. Put me under contract for $1,000 a week to create this reality show. At the time, now I'm a comic, of course, and, and I'm still doing a lot of that. And one of my good friends is Richie Pryor. Now, Richie had just done a special at NBC and punched out an executive because his special had deleted one of his skits. And then he, so he's in county jail, and he's also in county jail because the IRS is waiting to arrest him for non-payment of income tax. So he's a really pecks bad boy in town. So anyway, the reason the show was called National Graffiti, because quite honestly, I got a lot of my stories from the National Enquirer, and I loved that movie, American Graffiti. 
You might remember the Warner Brothers. I loved it. So I said, we'll call it National Graffiti. And I wanted my sidekick, I wanted my Byron Allen to be Richard Pryor. I go into ABC for my first and last meeting at ABC. Guy's name is Lou Ehrlich. I got five scripts written and stories. We have, uh, we have a, uh, a lawyer in New York who's the uh, world's only licensed vampire hunter. We have a beautiful brunette stripper who advertises herself as a stripper for God. We had the unluckiest man in the world who's in the Guinness Book. We had all these wonderful stories. We allow them to tell their own stories. We never exploit them. We never make fun of them. We just let them tell their own stories and people laugh at their lifestyle or not laugh. That's entirely up to them. We explain, we let them explain their life and their choices in life. I've always been more interested in real people than any celebrity I have ever, ever met. So anyway, I said, Lou Ehrlich, he says, I don't understand this crap. He said, you just have introductions into films. I said, the stories are the stars. And you don't need, you should have unknowns as, as hosts of this. And I said, I'm only known in LA, so I'll be one of the hosts. He said, who else? I said, I'd like my co-host to be Richard Pryor. He leaned over the counter and he said, that nigger is never getting on this network. That was the last meeting I ever had with Lou Ehrlich. I wow. tried eight months ago to tell that story to the guy that George Nury, the guy that hosts Coast to Coast. He heard me say that and said enough of that language and cut me off. I heard that and show. Thousands of, thousands of people thought I had turned into Lenny Bruce yeah. and I was swearing. I hadn't sworn I was just quoting some executive from the 1970s. So I accidentally got it on NBC a year later, and it became the number one show in the country. And, of course, Byron Allen was hired then at 21 years of age, one of the least informed humans I ever met, but now one of the richest producers in America, I might say, with a, an outfit called Entertainment Studios. He does a, he does a, a lot of these uh, black shows, uh, judge shows, and, and that kind of stuff. And what he does is he barters. What he did is he would go out and he'd make a half hour, and he'd call the stations and give it to them for nothing and say, you keep 15, you keep half of the advertising minutes, give me the other half. And he started doing this 20 years ago, and he just paid $300 million to buy the Weather Channel. Wow. Okay. Jeez. Stag- staggering. I'm uh, staggering. You, you, I you can't make I this stuff up. You can't. You cannot. Uh, wow. Okay. I'll tell, I'll tell you why. He's he's one of the, it's, since it's in, in the book, one of the least informed people I'd ever met. He was going to USC. He's 20, 21 years of age. We have to hire this brilliant black girl to take his exams because he couldn't, he didn't do his exams right. And, uh, I did a story about a fellow who was like his own Madame Tussaud. He built his own lifestyle images, every bit as good as Madame Tussaud, and he had them all over his house. But all around his dining room table, he had seated for company the four Beatles. And it was a wonderful little story. And since it was a lightweight story, I gave it to Byron. And then Byron says to me, who are the Beatles? <laughs> He'd never heard of the Beatles. Okay. It's okay. 19, 
80. Never heard of the Beatles. Now when I go down to do Jim Garrison, I do a story about a guy named Porkchop. He, he was a New Orleans version of Sammy Davis Jr. The most famous street performer in town. He was only about five feet two, probably 95 pounds, few teeth missing, but could that man dance? And boy, could he perform. So anyway, in the introduction to this fellow, I mentioned like a lot of the greats, like Satchmo. And we were like five minutes before airtime. And he comes over to me and he says, who's Satchmo? So I must tell you, wow. when I heard that Byron had earned his first million dollars making these, he has created hundreds of jobs. He had, and what he's created is Vuzak. It's tough to watch while you're waiting for something meaningful on television, which never comes along, which proved H.L. Mencken right when he said nobody ever waited, went broke in America underestimating the intelligence of the American people. So <laughs> I, I applaud him for having the genius of understanding mediocrity and how to, how to make it. Then that, did you ever see the movie Amadeus? Uh, boy, it's been a while. Yes. Oh, well, okay, it's a story of a young Mozart and this guy, uh, Calieri, who steals all his music and oh, yeah. try, tries to destroy this boy genius. And, of course, at the end he fails. Mozart's music, it just you can't stop it. It's just so so absolutely wonderful. And the very last scene, he's committed to his insane asylum. And he calls himself the king of the mediocre. And he said, the world is being taken over by us. And I forgive you. It's a great ending to a movie. But anyway, when, when, when real people is canceled, Bernie Brillstein was one of the most successful managers in Hollywood, worth millions and millions. He owned the entire staff of Saturday Night Live, Lorne Michaels and all of them got them all started. He was my first manager when he had not a nickel to his name and he owed $80,000 to the casinos here in Vegas. And he, and, and he was a drunk besides and his second wife saved, saved his life. But anyway, we would, even when he became a monster, uh, manager, we were always close friends. We went to hockey games together and I said to him, you know, the show's going to die. And he said, John, what an egomaniac are you? You're just a performer on the show. I said, Bernie, you have no idea what goes on back there. He said, what do you mean what goes on? I said, I write that stuff. You can't take Neil Simon's typewriter away from him and give it to somebody else and have the odd couple pop out for crying out loud or the Sunshine Boys. And he, he said, you're ridiculous. I said, okay. I said, you ever heard of the jumping frog of Calaveras County? He said, absolutely, Mark Twain. I said, that's right. I said, how many times do you think somebody did a story on that? He said, what are you talking about? I said, you think that was the only year that Mark Twain showed up? It had been going on for 18 years. It wasn't the story. It was the storyteller. Julius Caesar was a play five times before Shakespeare did it. Hamlet was a play 11 times. It's not the story. It's the storyteller. So anyway, he still didn't believe me, but I predicted because it's the week after I was gone, in spite of the fact that Slaughter had a two-year guaranteed contract, they canceled the show because it went right into the toilet. Yep. Yep. Wow. You know, just hearing you relate this, uh, folks, I mean, 
where else can you hear this this background um i'm just i'm fascinated by this uh, i know we kind of drifted from uh, jim garrison but this is so critical because it 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 is who john barber is and again i i go back to your opening about intelligence talent and character and this speaks to really in my view the character of john barber and, and your intelligence as well my goodness and of course well, I, yeah, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take credit for that, quite honestly, because you know what? The thing that has kept me company all these years, especially when it was really tough, I must have been born with a hope gene, and somewhere in my past life, I might have been Sholem Aleichem, for God's sake, <laughs> because when my when my son got married eight years ago, he was working at CSI. And he was getting married at the Henry Fonda Theater, and he called me and asked me if I would do, would I speak at his wedding? And I hadn't spoken in 25 years, for crying out loud. I was just on the golf course, and I was at home reading and writing. He said, I said, Christopher, I don't do that anymore. He said, Dad, your son, I want you to come and speak. Well, when he hung, I agreed to do it. It was going to be eight months off. When I hung up the phone, I sat at the typewriter, in less than 10 minutes, I wrote my 10-minute speech. I didn't even look at it for eight months. When the time came, I got up on stage, looked at it one time, and it was in my head, and did it. And if you go again to my site, YouTube forward slash johnbarbersworld.com, and Google John Barber Speaks at his son's wedding, you will see it. And, you know, Doug, I don't know where this comes from. I just, You know, Nicholas Tesla said... He said he never invented anything. He said, what I do is I sit down and I ponder the universe and I focus on something. If it's going to be electricity, I focus on that because it's an electric universe. And he said, what appears in my head is the fully manufactured blueprint. And I turn into a stenographer writing down what has mysteriously been put into my head. And I thought that was so profound and probably so true. Because if you were to say to me now, hey, John, tomorrow I have to go speak to the governor. He's visiting uh, Pennsylvania and he wants to talk to me. I'd like to have something to say to him. I could give you a half a dozen things. They would pop out of me. And I don't know where they come from. So I can't Hmm. take any credit for that. And like Garrison, who was cornered by the truth of discovering what was not in the Warren report, that the government lied and participated in that murder, is that I I discovered by accident Jim Garrison's story. I'd always loved stories. I always wanted to be a storyteller. And when I was eight years of age, I wanted to write my first book, but I kept putting it off. I thought I had a great little life to write about. I mean, as good as Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn. And I put it off until I was 80 years old because I was too busy living it, you know. And I, and I only did it because I was being constantly badgered by my son and a couple of producers not to have these stories forgotten. So that's why I did it. Well, uh, I want to, I want to congratulate you, by the way, today, folks. John Barber, our guest, of course, uh, John Barber's world and, uh, the American media and the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy today inking a deal with uh, Trine Day on his autobiography. Congratulations, sir. 
Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Again, it's a blessing. Here I am talking to you, and I just finished talking to Chris. But if there's anything, uh, if you're talking about the media, I mean, there is absolutely one, one of the wonderful things I like about the film is it has a resolution. And I, you know, every, uh, uh, even though, uh, the original part one got rave reviews and standing ovation in a few theaters that I got it in, I never got a release for it in the United States. It was only released in Europe. Uh, Werner Herzog brought me to Vienna, gave me an award. They brought me to Australia. Huge hit all around the world. They wouldn't release it here. But every November 22nd, I would offer it free to every cable network, PBS, every outlet. They never, ever responded, and those who did turn me down, because Tom Brokaw had brought me to NBC four years ago when he was doing something on the 50th anniversary for the military channel. God forbid America has a channel now called the military channel. (laughs) My God. So anyway, he's doing this hour special on the Kennedy assassination. I called Tom because his daughter and my son both went to Stanford. We were very close at NBC when he was hired to go and become the uh, Washington correspondent for NBC, and they had a going-away party. They wanted me to MC the party, so we were always very close. And I said, give me five minutes just to tell part of Jim Garrison's story. And he said, no, and hung up on me. Nice to hear from you, but no. And he hung up on me. Then what I did, I reached... I just got my computer, new computer. So I researched the 10 leading assassination sites. And I then wrote to all of them, sent them a copy of the video. This is free for you to put on your site for all of your subscribers, which would have meant, now up to that time, about 800,000 people around the world had seen it. But almost nobody in the United States. They all turned me down. One of them even sent me a nasty letter and turning me down, and her name was Deborah Conway, whose husband was in military intelligence at one time. Why she did that, I don't know, and she apologized to me later when I made it public that she had done that, because I name names. I don't say what to say. I name names, and I've got all the documentation to back that up. So I have concluded, as you see in the film, Project Mockingbird infiltrated Every leading newspaper, television station, news channel, radio station in the United States of America for the sole purpose of creating a fake war foreign policy. And of course you saw the first one, as I said before, was the one with Russia. They had no people to fight it. The next one was the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. We all know that and everybody admits now it was fabricated. Nobody punished, even posthumously, for that. We also know Iraq, no weapons of mass destruction. And if you've heard of Susan Lindauer, you heard of Susan Lindauer? Oh, yeah. oh yes, yes. Okay. okay, there's a lady who's CIA. She is assigned to look into what's going on in Iraq. She finds out there are no weapons of mass destruction. Saddam Hussein has nothing to do with 911, and her, her cousin is George Bush's press secretary. So all the information is getting to George Bush, and she's saying, stop the war, stop the war. There's no reason for it. And, of course, George is not going to stop the war because he's already said they had already made plans to get into seven countries in the Middle East. Iran is the last one standing. And let's hope 
they get a nuclear bomb because if Sudan had one, like North Korea has one, they might have survived. And one of the reasons that John Kennedy may have been dispatched is he he wanted open investigations into Demona in Israel to the manufacture of their atom bombs. Of course, they wouldn't let him in. Their prime minister resigned as a result of that. So Kennedy went to the courts to get APAC registers his foreign lobby. And it was in court when he was assassinated, and nobody has done that since. And indeed, APAC may be necessary to protect Jews, but indeed it lobbies more for Israel than it does for Jews in the United States. So these are all factors in this. Anyway, Susan Lindauer then calls a con- her congressperson and said, I need to give you this information to make it public. And it never gets public. The next morning, the FBI is at her at her door, and they arrest her for violation of the Patriot Act and put her in prison without trial. So that's what's going on in America. And a lot of people don't know it, and only those people who listen to your show and those people who do the kind of stuff that you have the courage not only to do, but knowledge enough to understand that you're telling the truth when you tell your listeners what it is that you've come across. So that's the state of the American media today. And the truth is, and I hate to say it, the bad guys have won. And a lot of you should not watch my documentary if you're going to be uncomfortable with the truth and know you cannot do anything about it. But you have to watch this and listen to the kind of show that Doug and his son and John Robson do because it's a wonderful show. It's a needed show so that you are informed enough to salvage your own life and the life of your loved ones. Because I tell you, folks, it's going to get worse. It is not going to get better. Wow. Thank you so much for that compliment. Uh, John Barber is our guest. He's the man behind the, the, the documentary, The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, a legend in Hollywood and really all across the, the world. Uh, I can't, uh, it's, it's hard for me to believe that I'm actually speaking with John Barber. If you go back to the 1980s, uh, 1980, 81, uh, real people, everyone alive knew that series, the man behind that. And of course, such a colorful, rich history. I don't know how you did it, Mr. Barber, but you ended up going, we're, we're about two minutes out from the end of our program. You've taken us right to almost to the end. Fantastic, uh, delivery time. Oh, that's so sweet of you. Know, a couple of years ago, I uh, uh, one of the writers of CSI was present at my son's wedding, so he wrote a special script. It's sort of poor man's uh, golden boys or an odd couple, uh, and, and so I co- co-starred with Tim Conway, and I was about eighty-one or eighty-two at, at the time. And somebody said to me, "John, are you never going to be over the hill?" And I said, "I am over the hill, but guess what?" I found another hill, and I'm going to start climbing it. <laughs> so I'll either run Love out it. of Doug. I'll either run out of hill, or I'll run out of life. But I must tell you, I cannot explain all the magnificently wonderful things that have happened to me. Again, none of it was planned. And again, I can't thank you enough. Your letter that you sent to me a week and a half ago about my work—that means everything to me. 
everything to me. The next time we chat, I'll tell you a great story about Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and why they couldn't get me. Frank couldn't even get me on the Dean Martin show. You will love the story because it's related to what we're talking about. But again, I want to thank you for that. I treasured that letter because when Sinatra had difficulty and he called me, he said he could get me on. I said, listen, Mr. Sinatra, the letter that you wrote is all I need. And the fact that you like me is all I need. I know it. I don't care if anybody else knows it. So I treasure that letter that you send me. And I will treasure the two hours that I get to spend with you because I've never had the opportunity since I've made the film to just sit down casually and honestly and warmly with another human being to tell what I know about Jim Garrison and the media. It's been a fascinating and a fabulous two hours. Very well spent. Uh, Mr. Barber, uh, we will be in touch. We will talk again. And, uh, boy, I'd love to come out to Las Vegas and buy you dinner, uh, you know, because you, (laughs) will you come back on? Uh, Oh, listen, I, I, I thought I was going to be on camera and I'm so proud of the fact that you wear a suit and a tie. And I was going (laughs) to do you. I put on a suit and a tie and a vest and got a haircut. Oh, <laughs> so, you gotta take my word for it. So uh, next time I come, come on, have your cameras working, and uh, in, you and indeed. I will, you and I will tell stories for an hour or so. Oh, th- that's going to be fantastic. We're we're, we're going to plan for it. In the meantime, I would urge everyone listening to this broadcast, the American media and the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy, one of the most important documentaries you'll ever see in your lifetime. And it's done by a true professional. And uh, I'd like to call you, if if you don't mind, a great friend, because that I think you are Uh, a man man of integrity and character. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, John, I want to say thank you. Uh, I've been sitting here silent for this two hours just listening to the fantastic (laughs) stories and uh, all this rich history. And it's been uh, such an educational and and great experience for me, too. So thank you so much for your time tonight. Well, Listen, you know, I was kind of thinking and hoping. I know this is a father-son show, and I have such a great relationship with my son. I, w- I, I was almost afraid to ask your <laughs> father, "Hey, what, where's your son? When's he?" So I, he, he was he glued. Was, to, we, we, he, he was glued to the earphones before the show. We, we, we fought, and uh, he won, <laughs> and I had to sit in the corner and listen. So <laughs> now I'll tell you something. You know, a, a student of history, and uh, um, he knows exactly who you are. And, and but he was glued uh, glued to his chair, listening to you. And well, next well, time we're, we're uh, gonna have a. Let, you must promise me, though, the next time I come on, you better be there with your father. Oh, every night, every night, every indeed. night, sir. Okay. Okay, wonderful. And thank, thanks for the patience in sitting and listening to me. Oh, I appreciate no, it. no patience required. Mr. Barber, thank you. May God bless you. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Folks, that'll do it for us. Uh, what a fantastic man, Mr. John Barber. Uh, if, if you weren't moved by, by portions of that story, man, you, you just weren't paying attention. And, and the, the documentary itself, it's such a great documentary. Um, uh, please support John Barber. Support the truth. The the truth is everything. I, I don't I don't know what else to say. And I want to thank those people who had let us know about this. The documentary, The American Media and the Second Assassination of John F. Kennedy. Folks, may God bless each and every one of you. <laughs>